What's up and welcome to another MoGraph MoCast. I'm Dave. And I'm Matt. Joining us today is our good friend, Mr. Jules Urbach. <laughs> Great to see you guys. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. You're looking... Look at this. I love this. Truck, <laughs> love, it, love it. Love it. <laughs> and MoGraph is a supplement to our site. I wear site. it out all the time. <laughs> And MoGraph is a supplement to our site, MoGraph.com, which is a motion graphics tutorial site with tutorials, plugins, podcasts, and other MoGraph stuff. And on the show, we talk about everything ranging from motion graphics to Cinema 4D, After Effects, plugins, render engines, doing business, doing taxes, being a contractor, or working for the man. You email us info at MoGraph.com. Let us know what you think about the show, questions, comments, concerns, queries, grievances, artist suggestions, show topic ideas. We're on Facebook, Twitter, all the things. Uh, mostly, you'll see us posting on uh, YouTube and MoGraph.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, email us. Let us uh, know if you have any topics for the show about the, the world of motion graphics. Uh, it could be something technical, artistic, doesn't matter what it is. Just uh, hit us up and um, we will attempt to answer those questions for you. Yes. And uh, we have a lot to talk about today. We're not going to do anything except just get right into it because uh, as you, if you've listened to one of these shows before, <laughs> uh, there's there's a lot. There's a lot to take. A lot in. of meat. A lot yes. of good meat. So that's going to be fun. Um, so I don't really know where we want to start off today. Uh, you know, I went through the entire talk, uh, your your previous talk yesterday, and I took like pages of notes. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that uh, you're well aware of everything that's in the next version of Octane, but uh, I've yeah. got it laid out here just in case we've missed anything. Um, you know, I guess we could really start probably with some of the real-time stuff that's going on. The The world of real-time is here. You've got uh, um, yeah. Unreal. You've got uh, things like Brigade coming out mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, virtual production, of course. You know, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that kind of interests me is... You know, you've got um, like this mix between rasterization and octane that you're that that you were showing off. I, th- I think with like the enterprise bridge, interested in that. Um, what's going on in the world of, of real time with octane? Yeah, real time. It's a great place to start because I think real time is now. Um, you know, it's a tool that's useful for artists, even above and beyond sort of the things we're doing with brigade. Now, I should start by saying, you know, giving an update on brigade because that's coming in Octane 2022.1 RC1. You know, that's a few nice. releases out, but we've been putting the pieces for that in there. So you have a little real-time button that speeds up the viewport significantly. There's no film buffer on the CPU anymore. That is in preparation for Brigade kernel. Um, but everything that's, that the Brigade will do, and the way that we decided to ship this was that nothing changes, it's all Octane, and there's different layers. So if you want to have the full filtering, which does all the temporal you know, filtering, everything, that's the last piece. And that's going to be very useful to get you know, basically zero noise um, while you're running in real time. That's what the Brigade benchmark is doing. But then you'll have sliders that add a little more noise that give you still some, you know, some something close to that. And I think that when you're looking getting something that's pretty close to final render or exactly the same quality at the very end, that's the first sort of, you know, target that we have for Brigade. There is a layer underneath that that I that we're using heavily, which is like, well, if you have a rasterizer and you want to mix that with Octane or Brigade, and that's Unreal, for example. And Unreal is huge for us, huge, because of virtual production. That's a market that is um, 
exploding. I mean, every TV show now that's interesting, you know, mm-hmm. but not just The Mandalorian, you know, the Star Trek shows. We used it for the for the Gene Roddenberry Archive Project where we loaded up, you know, these beautiful octane rendered um, scenes. And while we're moving the camera around, it would pull that in and we would switch to Unreal. Real time would have set, up, set it up and then we'd print it on, on render. Right? We'd you know, do the final frames there. So we'd have that as, as, as additional data. So virtual production is where a lot of that rubber meets the road for a lot of work that artists are, are going to be doing. Then you have the ability, I think, if you're doing stuff that is somewhat interactive, and there's a lot of great work that Epic has done with blueprints, and that's sort of like a no-graph for interactivity that's pretty easy to use. We have a lot of artists on staff at Otoy working on Roddenberry, working on the Alex Ross, Marvel, and other stuff projects that are using blueprints to set up very simple triggers to make the world, the art that they're doing, come alive. And we can store that in an Orbex file because Epic has, um, thankfully, open-sourced all of Unreal, created a very permissive license, which effectively makes blueprints like USD or EXR. It's just a format yeah. that we can incorporate. And there is a lot of interest within, you know, we're part of the Cronus working group for GLTF. We're, we're involved in many other things. Um, it's going to be something that's pretty important, I think, for the metaverse. It's not going to be everything, but I think there's such a great amount of understanding in Unreal how to do interactive pieces that I feel that's a great place for us to add things like Brigade and a lot of our, you know, AR and VR stuff as well. And I feel like that's the state of, of, of real time these days. There's a lot. Brigade, though, for sure, is going to have the ability for people to just do uh, and it's scene dependent, right? Because there, there can be scenes where you're, you're still sort of outside of the brigade, uh, real time, you know, filtering piece um, where there's some noise. But for a lot of other things, like that Japanese garden's a perfect example where you can just go right to from real time into final final render, really. And as we sort of keep going, I mean, I think this first release of Brigade is coming out in, in you know this summer. Um, there's going to be more versions more work, there's more hardware coming, right? That can improve how that works. So if we didn't have hardware ray tracing, which was introduced back in 2018. Having Brigade functionally work wouldn't be great. Um, you know, it, it would just be a third the speed, right? Which is not what you want for something in real time. We are going to be having Brigade on the uh, Octane X app, you know, on, on, you know, and an Octane X on, on the Mac. It just won't have hardware ray tracing, so you're mm-hmm. going to you'll feel that probably lack of speed. Right. I think at some point um, that might change. You know, everyone's trying to add hardware ray tracing. I think Intel and AMD have already announced that, you know, that they're doing that. Um, but, but yeah, I think that, that real time for sure is is getting to the point where you, it's, it's a really significant part of the workflow. And, and hopefully what happens is that you're not as stuck in, you know, OpenGL preview mode or, you know, rasterized mode where, where it's all, you know, where, where it's not final in final quality. So I think that's, that's where a lot of the real-time work that we're doing, you know, tries to fit in so that you just have something that's much more instantaneous, um, in, you know, while you're working and creating things. And I think it's really very close to that, very close. And things mm-hmm. like caustics are now basically almost, you know, instantaneous in the viewport as well with the new kernels. Yes. So mm-hmm. there's, there's, and, and a lot of the little funny tricks and pieces we added in the Brigade demos, those are now in, um, they might even be in the next XB2 release, you know, the very fast fog and the god rays, not, not even the fast ones that we added with, with Spectron Vectron back in 2018, but the newer stuff where you want to have just instantaneous height fog done, you know, mispass in there, um, instantaneous slide shafts in there. So it's actually in the post-processing pipeline. It does a ray tracing pass. That was from the Brigade you know, demos we did before. It's now going into Octane. You can use it, by the way, with any of the kernels, not just the Brigade one. So that's pretty cool. What was the... I, I don't use PCM that often. What was the deal with, uh, you know, so for for photon tracing, you said it retains full IPR in, inactiv- uh, interactivity. Was there something before that was kind of stopping that from happening? I, I wasn't aware of that because I didn't really use it that often. 
Yeah, well, so the photon tracing kernel is a brand new kernel. Like we just wrote it from scratch. I mean, obviously it's using a lot of code from other kernels, but it was designed to um, initially fulfill the features that were in a paper called progressive photon mapping, where you kind of have almost, it's like a biased approach, right? You render the caustic mm -hmm. from one camera and the other camera is there, you know, capturing that. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that approach is that while you're doing this render, you're doing that. If you move the camera, everything sort of goes to tech, you know? And so the the, the improvements that we made as we we're doing it is, you know, and, and people were calling us out and like, well, when you do this, like it's not gonna work great because it's not gonna be fast. There's like five other techniques that are related to caustics and photon tracing and, and, and path guiding. We applied all of those in there and we ended up with a kernel that not only did um, what that paper does in real time with no loss of interactivity, but even does volumetric caustics now, which is a big win. Um, so it's great. I mean, it's I think it's state of the art. Uh, and, and again, like with other pieces of the tech, we're gonna keep working on that. Um, but that gives you, it, it just makes caustics either, you know, depending on how you set up the scene, it could be real time uh, if they're sharp caustics. Um, but even if it's, if it's, you know, like a 30 second render, you know, you're competing with something that would be a thousand times slower in yeah. path tracing, or, you know. And PMC, yeah. in some respects, I don't think is that necessary anymore. I mean, it's there, we're mm -hmm. keeping it, we're maintaining it, but you may not need it really with, with the photon tracing kernel. So that that was the idea. Is that, and, and and ultimately, your your costings are now really, really, really cheap, and they look really good. And mm -hmm. so as, as far as Brigade goes, like for me, I'm excited about it because it's like, I'm a Cinema 4D person, obviously, uh, but like I'm dabbling in Unreal. I don't know if I'll ever be like a full Unreal person, right? right. So I, yeah. I'm going to stay yeah. in Cinema, and so that's why I like Brigade for that real time stuff. You know, I could just get out quick passes and stuff like that. But what I originally was imagining in my head, and I, I might have been the original plan for y'all, was that Brigade would be a kernel drop down, and and I think you mentioned something about every individual kernel will have some sort of option to to run faster in a, a brigade-like way. Is that correct, or am I completely off on that? <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're actually correct in all those respects, because what we're doing in the end is is having, there is a brigade, you know, kernel and it's it's a, it's a whole different thing it renders differently than all the other ones and that's the closest we can get to something i mean if you if you played with something like omniverse for example um you know their their approach is not too dissimilar to what we're doing with brigade i mean obviously it's you know we, we've been working on this for a while and i think what we have is is really good and it's meant to be used inside of c4d or blender or things like that where that where that can work like blender of course it has ev and you know maxon has redshift rt i mean i don't think brigade is any of those things to be honest it's it's much closer to just fast octane with with temporal denoising and filtering um and and a lot of extra bells and whistles so when you go into that mode there you know the filtering itself it's like the denoiser you'll have some you'll have some changes that, that come from that if you turn all that off and you still want to have this all the speed improvements we made for that brigade kernel but just use direct lighting or path tracing or photon tracing, you will, you'll have that. And in fact, we've even thought of having like a slider where you can kind of mix those together. Yeah. Um, but the Brigade kernel itself is initially gonna be some super set of direct lighting. And we're just like in the end, no, you can kind of like, it, it's, it's, it's gonna be a, a, an actual add-on where turning on real time and turning on Brigade kernel are, are global flags. So if you're in direct lighting or photon tracing, you know, Brigade kernel will just, you know, basically absorb those parameters and give you back a filtered result basically so that's how that's how it's going to ship and i think that after testing it myself that that makes the most sense i mean effectively if you had a brigade kernel which I, what if you wanted to have that sort of gradient between direct lighting or or path tracing or photon tracing 
ultimately just having that set up normally and then having the brigade kernel itself be almost like a, a separate you know grouping or a separate info box where you can turn it on you can turn that kernel mode on and any setting you have in the other kernels normally get absorbed and then the extra ones are shown in there that's I think how it's going to work best and you know we'll see i mean we have, between rc1 and gm and and you know, which is goldmaster um we'll see how user feedback sort of progresses but one thing i will say that we've run into which is something that that it's it's going to be a, almost like a dcc per dcc uh, issue is if we don't pop up our own ipr and we're going through the system that goes through the viewport and it's through the cpu you're going to lose a lot of that speed so for example even brigade inside of unreal the first thing we realized is we've done all the speed ups but Unreal normally, you know, ingests the viewport from a third-party render. We're one of the few mm. through the CPU. So thankfully, they've added this thing that does shared hardware GPU surfaces. We're going to use that. It'll be full speed, and we need to do the same thing inside of C40. And if and notwithstanding that, you'll have that in, in our IPR pop-up IPR, which we're also building. And Ahmed, our C40 developer, has been building an entire interface separate from C40 that can be inside the IPR that has a node graph that can work in. You know, a standalone app doesn't have to be the existing Octane standalone. It'll be sort of a, a version above that. Thanks to our license from Axon, we'll be able to load Octane for C40 files into this app mm -hmm. and do edits, send it to the render network. Also, yeah. it'll be able to load other other renderers as well, including Arnold and, and Redshift and Cycles. Um, and um, and if we do our job right, we might even be able to get Unreal in there. And I think the Unreal stuff is is there's the render in Unreal, and then there's the whole app itself, and then there's even the interactive pieces in the Node graph. I, I consider those three separate things. So there's a world where you could probably, if you wanted to have any arbitrary render running inside of, you know, inside of Octane, we could do that. We've shown this with Arnold before. Mm -hmm. That allows, that's because we can load in a hybrid render delegate or we can just load in a whole separate app that's hooked into the system. Like we're doing that with Embergen. Embergen's mm -hmm. own renderer now runs inside of Octane as an AOV. It could be composite. You don't actually need to have it pass through Octane or Brigade. And so that's a very powerful system. We're most likely going to get that working first with um, with Unreal, uh, where you could just use the Unreal render as the AOV pass along with all the other passes. This multiple render pieces is very powerful. And to that end, yeah, you know, one of the things so that we, we just shipped, <laughs> GPU compositor. So the compositor nodes in Octane were like, yeah. You know, we put that in there at the last minute, I think in 2021, and it was CPU bound. This, to get ready for Brigade, to get ready for all this crazy stuff, we moved it to the GPU. And now we're going to have OSL shaders, anything you want. It'll almost be like a texture, you know, in, right. in and of itself for each of these AOVs. And the compositor can then take things from other renders, from Brigade, from, you know, you can even run Octane in a whole separate process that's not just headless, but actually is running, you know, a render target or a camera on a whole other machine to bring those in. So those are all the things that are showing in the talk. You know, there's there's a lot there. But that system, I think, that, that, that sort of ability to sort of branch out from the core render into other renders, into other, you know, almost clones of, of your Octane instance running in a separate process, that was always our plan for out-of-process rendering and headless rendering. That, I think, is, is really close to shipping because we have it running in, in, in um, you know, in, internally, and it's, it's working great, and it's going to be applied to Blender as well. So Blender, we had a separate Octane server. You can now just boot up any instance of Octane, and Blender can send its data to it and get in information back. And you can start to see how this becomes a hub where you can run Unreal and Blender and C4D and yeah. have the geometry of the rendering be switched between all of them or connected. Omniverse is trying to do that too. Um, but I mean, I think that, you know, from, for, from the perspective of artists using our tools, 
it'll hopefully all just just work and 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 interoperate in this way. And for in certain cases like with Embrigen uh, and Liquigen, which they're and they're doing some some even other things with terrains and things like that. We want to we want to allow you to, to to use everything. And they have a very nice real time um, you know render, which we have the source code to for 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 volumetrics. It's not it's not as accurate as what we could do even in Brigade or in Octane. But that, maybe that's not the point. And so already people use Embergen for plates and for compositing. And so this will be like in the core, essentially, once we once you hook these pieces up. And then you'll also have Brigade as well. So it, I think that this is a workflow for the future that, again, also speaks to the ability to sort of mix real time with offline. Um, but also the idea is that we just get octane quality as it is to be as close to real time, as moisture as possible. And that was the first, you know, um, you know, sort of goal that I had with Brigade. And I think beyond that, we have more things from the Brigade sandbox, which get rid of spectral rendering, can make it even faster, cleaner, and things like that. So we'll be adding those pieces probably after um, to just give it even more options. But I think that what we're starting with out of the gate is pretty good. To, and is that considered multi-stream? Is, is that what that is? Is that what it's titled? Multi-stream, multi-engine? Yeah, that so there are, three, there, there are three multis. There's multi-render, okay. which, which okay. is... No, and you, you can. Uh, this is where you can drop in Arnold or Octane. It's just a different render. Yep, they have mm -hmm. both. Uh, that also allows us to load in any Hydro render delegate. So that could be, it could in theory be RenderMan. We've tested it with, um, you know, Cycles and, and even Pixar Storm, which is a real time OpenGL render. So that's multi render. Multi engine is a bit different. We have basically three DCCs that we want to essentially turn into something like. Like in the core of Octane, you load a USD file or a Limbic file in an Orbex. It just works. It's a proxy. What we want to do is do the same thing so that you can take a C4D asset or an Unreal project or a Blender project without saving as an Orbex, but load them in an Orbex or have those things operate as a, a full stack within within your session um, and expose as much of those pieces to authoring in the apparent app as possible. That is multi-engine. And that is something that, for example, allows us to take a C4D file and run it on the render network or run it in Octane standalone or run it in another DCC um, with the full, literally the full max on app. I mean, that's a bespoke license where we can run plugins, we can run X particles, we can run anything we want for the Octane. Cool. That, was the, that was the point. And that, that is something that we worked for a long time with Dave. Uh, CEO of Maxon has been great. I mean, that's a license that changes the entire ecosystem for us. And I think that shows also, I think, where Maxon's thinking too, that they're an ecosystem player. and. I love that, you know. So that's that's where multi-engine came from. Unreal, same thing. You want to do interactive content in blueprints in Unreal. You want to mix that with your C4D scene without changing it and mixing these together. There's going to be a way to do that, probably from within each of those three DCC tools, um, or at least to load in those features or scenes. And that's where multi-engine sort of fits in, where multi-stream fits in. That's much more like network rendering, but but with a lot more interesting features. So that allows you to have essentially two instances of Octane that can essentially send data back and forth, a little bit like what's been going on with Blender from the very beginning. Because Blender is GPL, we could never ship Octane, we could never directly link it into Blender. We had to have an Octane server that would be a special you know, pop-up, and then you would connect to it and you'd be able to use Blender as if Octane was, were integrated. What we've done is we've generalized that, and we're solving all these things that have been on the roadmap for years. Headless rendering will work with this. So in other words, if you wanted to just send all of the data to, and, and you don't necessarily need a network render node, it'll be like just some version of Octane standalone that boots up as a render node, and that can basically operate as headless rendering. It can also operate on the same machine as an out-of-process rendering system where the, no rendering is done within the, you know, the DCC. It's all sent over the wire to this other um, process, and that's pretty cool. But that same system means that you can then interlink live potentially different DCCs on the same machine across different machines collaborate um, because essentially anything you know can can host 
a C node or, or geometry that can be fed into the other DCC. Now, how those things are edited or exposed, I mean, like right now, we need to do more work allowing you to edit an Orbex file. But that's something that we're, we're going to be sort of layering on top of that in tandem. And what's interesting as well is that with the render network, right, we send, you know, essentially a atomized version of the scene to be rendered on the cloud, rendered on the, the blockchain and these, these decentralized nodes. What we can do is we can turn on that very same system to, to basically be, you know, ready for real time, right? Ready to basically ingest data and render it back to you. So in other words, having your GPUs exposed live through the render network is viable with that system. Uh, latency aside, it's still pretty useful. And I think that also will allow us to just allow nodes to to do real time. It is not necessarily driven by a DCC on, on, on the artist side, but just, you know, play in this world. Here are the blueprints. Here's how this works. Use Octane Brigade and Unreal together. Um, you know, save what you're doing and render it out as a final render. Those are the kinds of things that, that all these pieces together, you know, make happen. And I, I, I love, be- like, the fact that there's, you know, you can have a node that's Cinema 4D, a node that's Unreal, but I think you even mentioned that you could even have the whole editor interface of Unreal, Unreal yeah. in that node, which is you can. incredible. And- it is incredible. So, so Epic has made that easy for us because they basically have given a license not just to Unreal Engine and Unreal Renderer and Blueprints, but also to the you know to the actual UI for the editor as well. And we're, we're thinking about this also. For, we did this with Sculptron. So Sculptron was our first internal test where it's a separate app, but it also now works as a multi-engine node. It can, all the sculpting things you're doing in that app can actually pop up as a window in Octane standalone or in the you know DCC plugins. Mm-hmm. That same interface will allow you to pop up a you know a Blender you know window or an Unreal window and edit that node, so that you know even if we don't expose everything within the parent the host application, the host application can still create a panel where you can have all those features there. Yeah, super powerful. It's like that's how you know multiple applications <laughs> might work if they could really interoperate nicely or iframes in a web page. That kind of concept is 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 where we're going with with these things. And in the case of um, Cinema 4D, we're not going to necessarily pop up the full interface. We don't have a license to the C4D UI in other apps, but we do have the ability, for example, for Ahmed's node graph and all the things that he's done right. to be layered on top of that. And, you know, it, honestly, if you're creating in C4D, you should probably be in C4D. But yes. the arrangement with Vaxxon is that if, you're, if you want to take data out of that and do other things with it, we have all the C4D. We've got the basic interfaces that most artists are used to. We've got all the plugins that could work. Uh, you'll need licenses for those. But, you know, with along with the renderers um, like Arnold and Redshift, which we worked out for the render network, um, you know, the, 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 the Maxon Cinema 40 hub is such an important part of that because everything you do in those tools then becomes, you know, modular modular and can be brought into other things. You could, for example, use that within Unreal to, to take your C40 files as they've been, as they're all prepped, including Octane Scatter, and that would work Ooh. inside of an Unreal Engine session. And like so, it's, it's, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is bringing up an interesting point. So does that mean, like, for example, right now when someone's working in Houdini, you know, yeah. uh, uh, they could build out something in Cinema 4D, then have to go through the process of exporting it to Houdini and then yeah. manipulating it from there. Are you saying that uh, with these individual nodes, we could work solely in Octane standalone, start building stuff in a C4D node, then bring that over? to a houdini node just like yeah that so, easily so what what will happen is if you export to um to houdini or you export let's say to orbex and bring to bring it somewhere else imagine not having to export to orbex and just taking your c4d file and loading that in houdini directly with oh octane, yeah octane will have, okay. they'll have the cinema 40 <laughs> engine i mean me. that's 
<laughs> now you're talking my language. With, with, yes, with about yeah. the same level of, I mean, you know, and, and, and so, and having the ability to, I mean, you know, the, the license tracks and also allows us to do live linking as well, but the portability of the data in its native format and untouched is very important. And we're not going to do that with every DCC, but we are doing it with, uh, you know, we were to have USD, which is already a pretty broad thing inside of WordBex. You could, in, in theory, then to, to put, put a C40 file, so maybe there's more things than just a C40 file you want to transfer it over. You could put that in WordBex, but it'll just be like a wrapper or mm -hmm. not. But either way, C40 becomes a native file format of the whole ecosystem. And we're going to do that with um, with Blender uh, as well. I mean, it's obviously it's open source. There's, it's a little trickier to the GPL, but it's, it's certainly doable. And then Unreal is sort of that third one where it's like, yeah, there's so much in this. You know, I think Epic is poised to have it, a lot of the stuff in there become part of open standards. Like we're helping with that. We have ITMF, which is based on Orbex. <laughs> you know, so, so you can sort of imagine, you know, Orbex or ITMF, which is the open source version of that being a superset of, of everything we've already done and USD and all these other things. Uh, and also Unreal, Blender and, and C48, like why not, right? And, you know, Houdini, like we, there is Houdini engine with, you know, we're thinking about that. I mean, we just have so much bandwidth to, to do these things. But yeah, there have been efforts to bring Houdini Engine, for example, into other apps. But I think that some of those things are missing the completeness of having a full-on render and everything that you're doing in one being brought to another. And honestly, I think that's the magic of, of what we're going to be able to do with the C4D uh, Maxon license. I mean, it's going to be it's pretty great. And I was I was thrilled that they that they're thinking that way. You know, I mean, they've done stuff with Cineware before, but this is a whole other level. Right. Sure, we're not going to be the only ones with you doing this, but I think, I think I'm pretty sure that we're the first. So, um, for that, I'm 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 excited to get you know this all this tech out there. And I don't oh know my. if it's oh Dino or Dino. I, I I apologize, but I was going to say the same exact thing there in the chat. Ahmed need like he's gonna have to clone himself, and and I was thinking about that. Was like, how is he going to like get all this like uh, uh, liquigen, embergen stuff integrated into Cinema? Because I want to use it in Cinema, and now you would just essentially use a node that would be embergen or something, mm -hmm. right? And just yeah. use it that way. So I, there's we have to also think about this. Is not just what Otoy can do, but I mean the whole. You know, benefit of having partners that we started bringing in a couple of years ago, starting I think with Jenga, and we have Architron, which is this, um, you know, which is basically a lightweight cat, lightweight a dead you know, app, unfortunately. But that code is going to be turned into, you know, architectural, you know, plugins and modules for the, all the DCC tools. Um, you know, we, we are working with 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 the Jenga effects guys, and we have a deep relationship, source code transfers, and all that stuff, mm -hmm. so that their stuff can go right into C4D. And you know yeah. they're also. I mean, they've been pushing the envelope. So it's like, when when does this when does this make the most sense to do the integration? Because Ahmed's waiting also to do the UX for that and all these things within each of the DCCs, uh, you, know, you know, for his DCC and, and and possibly others that might use some of his work. But one thing that that I've been waiting on for Emergen is sparse volumes, right? Because if you are all always in a box, that's beautiful and it works great. But what we need, if you're rendering things in in you know massive scene, you need to be able to have almost infinite, you know, yes. infinite sparse volume. They yes. just got that working. That is huge. That's amazing. That is amazing, right? So I think with that, you know, then then I'm like, okay, now you can start to do production scenes with this. And and you know, we're still early days. Same thing with Liquigen. Uh, you know, there's there's also, I mean, there's some great stuff, frankly, in R26 with cloth, um, you know, mm -hmm. decorations. Those can mm -hmm. now be brought into potentially other things. Like if you want to simulate things using anything in cinema, that's could run in Blender, could run in Unreal. I mean, it's weird, but like that's just how it works. We we aren't going to be popping up Maxon's interface, but if you set those things up in C4D, um, you know, those things would then operate in there, and we'd have our own you know interface into those that would be built by Ahmed, and and that would be 
that's going to be pretty sweet. Would it be so. similar to the way that Houdini engine, Houdini's engine works, where it's like you can kind of create your own plugin and then yeah. bring that into like C4D and still have those options to mess with, you know, yeah. versus the entire uh, software? Yeah. Well, I think in this case, we do have the entire software. I think my my guess would be that if you have a Max on one account, we'll probably be able to pop up the interface at some point cool. um, because it's everything. It's just we, yeah. we just don't turn that on because our, our arrangement is not to do that unless you are a Max on one user. And that's still probably further out. But that's the intent. I mean, I don't think that, that you know, there's any reason for Cinema 4D not to run if you have an account that operates it. That's that's one of the kind of things that's simplified with them going to subscription as well. But even if you don't have a Maxon One sub, all of C4D will work without the Maxon interface, but with ours for those purposes. And I think that's very fair. Like, I mean, I obviously yeah. mm -hmm. I want Maxon to succeed, and I want you know Maxon One users to be able to leverage everything. I think Maxon does as well, even within our tools. If you have that account, so it, I think that that's where it's it's, it's heading. The Houdini engine, um, Houdini engine has been integrated in a bunch of places. There's there wrappers for Unity and Unreal and and C4D. Um, and we will probably take a look at that, and I think that that's something that we'll 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 be investigating. But I think the things that we're doing, I mean, I've never quite seen a full application with everything, not not, not just the a library version, of it, but just everything in there as an option to start with. And we have that with Unreal, and we have that in theory with 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 the uh, Maxon integration as well. So, it, you know, it's the ability, for example, of of C42 pop up interface. If we if we ever you know do decide that that's something that we can work out with Maxon, interesting, uh, and and. I, also feel like with Houdini, once we have more developers on, on these pieces, I'll have them look at Houdini Engine as well. Um, but we're, we're just focused on these three, and that's a lot of work. And C4D is probably one of the largest um, and most important pieces. That also unlocks being able to send C4D files to the render network fully. I mean, you're, you're not going to have to worry about that because you'll still test an Octane standalone or some version of that, but it'll load your C4D Octane file with plugins, so you'll know you know how it runs. I mean, that's all a worthwhile test to, to have. But I mean, that's that's how we've always intended to bring C4D and other formats to render. When we look at the uh, you know at the sizes of of the data files and over Unreal products are just crazy enormous when they're exported to Orbex. C4D is there are issues, right? I mean, it's not it's not a perfect you know export process. It can be done, but it's like simplifying that is is better, right? And that's why we spent the money to get this license and get it in there and, and put a whole team on it. And um, yeah. there's so many questions. I, I know people are asking about tokens and things. We're, we'll get to that stuff later. We're talking yep. about Octane yep. right now. Um, and I, I noticed that Omega Fox actually said, I'm worried for my VRAM and GPU headroom. <laughs> well, good news. Let's skip ahead and talk about Meshlets for a second. Because yes. Oh, I that think is... that <laughs> I'm really excited about that. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I think credit where credit is due. I mean, really, the, the, the first... Um, the first tool that supported something like this was Unreal Engine 5 with Nanite, you know, which, and the, and, and the thing with Nanite is it, it, the way that it works, for those who aren't familiar, you know, you, you don't store the geometry necessarily in memory or, or, or even on, in CPU memory, right? It's on your SSD, it's on disk. So if you have two terabyte SSD, eight terabyte SSD, your geometry in this viewport could be eight terabytes in theory. And it works especially well when you've got you know, massive landscapes. I mean, I, I remember seeing, the thing that made me convinced to do the meshlets as soon as possible is there's an Octane user uh, building the Death Star, which I love, I think that's amazing, in Octane. And he's like, I can't load enough geometry for the Death Star, even with instancing, I'm gonna do it on Unreal Nanite. And I'm like, that guy needs to come back to our ecosystem. And and, and so the idea of meshlets is basically Nanite. So meshlets, basically give you all of that, all the same functionality, stream geometry, stream textures from your SSD 
into the rendering, you know, into the GPU. I mean, of course, you need some memory. Yeah, there, there's a right. buffer. There's a buffer just like there would be for reading from disks of like, I don't know, 500 megabytes, nothing crazy. And everything that we're showing, I mean, you're, you're loading 40 gigabyte scenes. It could be much larger. It, it, it's really, it, it's a streaming system. And, you know, if, if we didn't have SSDs and we didn't have GPU manufacturers, which don't just, you know, aren't limited to just NVIDIA, it's like AMD does it, Apple just announced it, right, for their, um, you know, in metal, you have to, you know, fast load. All those things allow meshless to happen. And the way that it'll work is you will have to prepare the geometry, but we'll make it kind of straightforward. I mean, it's like turning a mesh to volume kind of thing. I mean, we'll we'll sort of pack it in, in you know, for you in a cache file that will then be able to, to load into streaming without having to store be stored in memory. And that's a one-off process. Now, you can then take those cache things and you can just move them around and do things to compose them. But it's essentially like, yeah, an OBJ file going into, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in, in, into mesh just probably wouldn't, raw wouldn't work you want to sort of change the way it's stored on disk so that it can go right into the into the gpu from a stream um but that's a one-time process and we're going to make it kind of built in and fast so I, my expectation is with meshlets you'll be able to take a a you know this geometry node or stack and essentially um you know cache that as as a meshlet um and then from that point onwards your vram is freed other than that you know that that streaming buffer and it could be used for other things. So that's where, you know, the, the magic happens. The difference between Nanite and, and Meshlets is that Unreal, first of all, it's, it, it doesn't actually, you know, Nanite's still for rasterization. And, you know, you, you can't really do path tracing or, or, or ray tracing at the complexity that we're doing with Octane or Brigade. But with Meshlets, nothing changes. It'll be absolutely same exact rendering pipeline, just with infinite geometry and, and textures as well. So. Uh, you know, there are people that have been looking at, oh, I want to have mint mapping and other things. The idea with, with, with meshlet textures is that those things can also just be infinitely large. So if you want to take the right. entire database from Google Earth, which is like, you know, exabytes or that data, <laughs> yeah. and that were on an SSD or multiple SSD, sure, that could stream in as well. And that's <laughs> the starting point for where meshlets begin and end. And, and that means that, you know, you don't need to worry about out of core because out of core isn't an issue because it's all out of, it's all, it's not even in memory, it's on disk. And, uh, Super, super, super powerful. Will you need you, a super fast like SSD or M2? Like I, I don't think you can run this enough, off of a right? 52 RPM, 5200 right. RPM like hard drive. Could you? It, it, it definitely needs an SSD. As far as the speed goes, I think that depends on how much that you know, your stream you're pulling out. But I mean, mm -hmm, everything yeah. that we've tested, and they're not high end SSDs. Those videos that we put in GTC, those are those are the real deal. That's it working, and it was. I mean, I, I think we just, it was a low-end SSD. It wasn't anything crazy. It was a dev machine. So it, it's nothing, it's nothing crazy, right? I mean, I, and, mm. you know, ultimately, if you have um, even an iPad, right, or, or, or a PlayStation, those SSD, you know, those, those storage things or, or you know, a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a MacBook Pro, I mean, all those things will be fine. And I think that we're, you don't need anything special or crazy to be able to run this. You, you know, I will probably have you know actual numbers once we get closer to shipping this thing. Um, you know, we're, it's it's definitely not a um, you know in, in the next release. I mean, we're targeting at first. We're hoping to get a first build in some test format this year. Uh, so it's because it is far enough along where we know it works, and we we just need integrated nothing. We need to do that work along with all the other things. But it's it's a major feature because to be honest. Um, even even for us to do that parity, which is important, anything you can do in Unreal, you need to be able to pass trace in Octane, and with no limits, right? No, no, you know, it still still needs to be for production rendering. And the Nanite stuff was was something that I really felt was was critical and important. Uh, you know, Lumen, I think, in some respects, is is you know, we have the we don't need that because we have Brigade and we have the you know, we have 
full path tracing with with the temporal filtering that Brigade has. Um, but there's also nothing that's going to stop you from switching to Unreal with Unreal multi-engine, or if you're in Unreal doing virtual production the way we did it for the uh, for the Rhinoberry project, which we just did a whole, you know, we did shorts, we did filming, we did everything. A lot of it was done in front of an LED volume. Um, final renders were generated by Octane from Unreal, sent to the render network to do, you know, to, to print out. We had all the camera data there as well. And that combination is is what I think virtual production demands. And that's a huge world for us uh, going forward. And even meshless streaming, um, you know, in a virtual production stream, you have eight terabytes of storage you want to load in or move around in. I mean, that's, they all, these, these things all fit together pretty nicely. Yeah, I saw the video, in the video you were you were showing off like a 22K file or something and just with displacement and just zooming in and zooming 128K in. 128K by 128K at 60 frames a second streaming in. Oh, 128K. With, you know, 128K, <laughs> yeah, because wow. 64K is easy. Yeah, 128K. Um, and I think the data set from the image is public. It's like one of those like crazy paintings the museum scanned in, you know, like, mm -hmm. like millimeter by millimeter at one, you know, like one K per, so something like that. And so that worked, how, that was our, that. How will that work within uh, the the different DCCs or inside, uh, are, do you just import it? Like how exactly would, what would be the workflow for that? So I think when you import a texture that large, you'll have the option of importing it as a meshly capable stream. And mm -hmm. it, when on import, it will probably create the cache for you, especially if it's a texture that is that is originally stored on disk or referenced on disk. And and that applies also to, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like if you want to load in the data set for the moon, and I was looking at the NASA data sets, right? It's, <laughs> it's like that painting. I mean, you have displacements, you have everything down to like each crater. It's it's crazy. And and I want to have like a solar system data set. We built it for this Roddenberry project. I want that to be in like. Mm -hmm. Render DB, Live DB, so people can start using that. We have the, you know, we have the uh, planetary node environment thing. Like, let's extend that with with everything that could be rendered cosmically, or you know, in, in, you know, with a stellar environment. And so we're thinking about these things, and I want to have this work with <laughs> method streaming. So having massive data sets of textures on disk uh, with displacements, all of that. Um, It'll, it'll be automatic, but I mean, I, we are talking about 120K or larger, or, or you know, or terapixels of, of data. It's, it's, it's stuff like that. Um, also, if you're saving a light field out and it's that kind of data and you want to pull it into the light field display with what we're doing with um, light field labs, I mean, this kind of stuff might might be relevant as well. So, um, yeah, I think that the way it'll work is on on import. Um, you know, if you're if you're if you you know if you're generating all this stuff procedurally, um, then then maybe a caching system or function. So it's it works very well when the data set is you know is a mesh basically or a texture. For things beyond that, I mean, for volume. By the way, I think that our goal is to just work with the Jagged team so that volumes are just generated live. Mm -hmm. And you don't need anything else because then you don't need a VDB. You don't need to store that, and mm -hmm. and and you don't even need to necessarily store the memory for it. You're just rendering it as it's as it's um, you know as it's being simulated. Same thing with Vectron, right? I mean, that's why we're trying to build more and more tools to to make those procedural things happen because there's no data storage or memory needed for for Vectron to run, for example. Omega um, Fox, he's he's like, can you even open a texture that size in Photoshop? <laughs> and like, I don't no, know. No, you, yeah. you probably can't. I mean, at some point you run out of memory. So you can, there are programs that will page, you know, textures or do something like EXRs or meant so you can look into inside of a massive EXR with multiple frames and pull in one, one viewpoint, one light pass. I mean, something like that, sure, you can load a piece of it, but and ultimately, we will be doing that too. I mean, you know, the whole point of the of nanite and meshless is that you're you're essentially like figuring out what chunks to load at render time and how to squeeze that down, and it's it's a whole process. But that's effectively 
it might be that we could just use Octane as a giant text reviewer, right, for terapixel textures or meshes. Why not? Yeah. Because that's that's right. what's there. I mean, Unreal, same thing, but I think that Unreal is is not. Um, you know, when we were looking at it, and even just looking at how to get like you know Nanite to render it in 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 Octane, we're realizing you know it's not going to be the same thing. I mean, Unreal does have a, have a path tracer; they've written it in DirectX, um, but it's still missing a lot of stuff, and it's missing everything that we have from a production render in Octane. So, ideally, you know, the, the, the benefits of people that are already using Nanite and Unreal, like even the, the you know the artists have switched to Unreal for Nanite to do that Death Star, we'll be able to just seamlessly use Nanite stuff in Octane, right? But also you'll be able to use that same technology, um, probably, hopefully with a more artist-friendly tool set to just build that same thing. Like you wanna have a trillion different, you know, meshes for, for the Death Star and load those in, you know, over 160 kilometer diameter, you know, giant you know, <laughs> <laughs> battle station. So be it, it'll, as long as we have SSD space for that. And, uh, and it will be unbiased. Un- yeah. <laughs> you measure that in parsecs? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The castle um, run was, was Yeah. <laughs> Question, how um how would this affect render time, you know? And is it is it, it will you only be able to you will will nanite be for or uh Not meshlets actual. be yeah. uh, sorry. Will it be <laughs> like only for brigade or uh, or will oh, it be used to be able to be across all of that and if you're using meshlets and say like say direct lighting or pmc or something like that it'll all work or path tracing will will that actually speed up some of your rendering time in some of these other uh uh, uh kernels Yes. So first of all, it, it works in all of them, right? So it's no different mm-hmm. than having a mesh or a texture normally. It's just now this thing's coming magically from your hard drive, so you don't have to worry about the texture of the mesh fitting into gotcha. system memory or GPU right. memory. Like so it'll proxy. work the same. It'll, it, it will. It will. Yeah. It, it will be faster for a couple of reasons. For one thing, uh, if you're if you're going to out of core, which you probably would be with something that large, mm-hmm. you know, it's faster than out of core um, in, in in a lot of respects. I think, and also. The way that, that something that large works is that there's there's you know by processing the data and the stream itself being efficiently based on where your, the viewport is right I mean that's that's how it works it doesn't mm-hmm. the streaming has to happen it's like when you're streaming a video you care about the present moment that the viewer is watching you you can skip ahead there's there's B frames and P frames that predict and and, and give you sort of the, the the frame in the middle but meshlets are a lot like that so essentially you're dealing with a lot less data. I think that it'll certainly it's it's designed for real time, um, so it'll it's already the demos you're seeing are running in the brigade sandbox, the equivalent of that brigade, uh, you know, benchmark that we put out, which is not full octane. That's just our test for brigade independently of anything with octane. We bring all those things into octane, which we're now doing, and the, the meshlet stuff will work very similarly, you know, very similar to that, where it, it'll it'll allow you to basically run it in real time and and have that at least run in brigade in real time, and then you'll also have the same benefits in octane normal you know normal octane um and i think it will speed things up i mean i think that given the the size of those scenes um there's a point where it might actually improve rendering time not significantly but mm-hmm. the fact that you can't do these things at all or that you had to go out of core i mean that's where the speed gains will be most you know most noticeable but it's also about just doing workflows and, and data sets that you just couldn't really effectively do before mm-hmm. and that's that's one of the main goals for the you know for the technology Chris asks, is voxelated volumetric lighting going to be faster in photon mapping kernel? I understand some of those words. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, let, let's see. I'm leaving the question now. Voxelated um, volumetric lighting. I think there's, I guess the answer to that is that we, you know, between XB1 uh, or XB0 and XB1 for Octane 2022, 
we significantly sped up. I mean, I don't, I don't think you had any speed up for volumetric uh, caustics. Um, that's in there now. We could do a lot more. You know, Raphael Rouse uh, at Silverwing was, we did a special build for him, which has basically like bias rendering. Like you could basically store the GI cache and that could be I reused. want that one, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's, we did it. It's, it's totally doable with, with the photon tracer. I mean, essentially, we have that that, that option. So we are, we'll keep exploring it. I mean, I think that that's the, the ability to cache your, your, your volume lighting is a no-brainer, and it's definitely going to be something that we, we add. I don't think it's quite in there now, but, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely being able to store a result that is, especially if it's not view-dependent, which, frankly, uh, scattering isn't. I mean, if you basically do all the lighting and you just want to look around, uh, you don't need to re, re, you know, re-render the scattering equation. It could just be baked into the lighting, just like a light map can be baked in or GI can be baked in or radiance can be baked in mm-hmm. um, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're just basically solving in a biased way. So now that we're sort of in brigade mode, now that we have the photon tracing kernel, which has some slight bias, slight, right, um, effectively in there, there's there's room for more. And there's no reason why we would not address, address those issues and give artists those tools so that you can go from, a compl- and, and this is where we're going probably next with the next feature, which is the uh, neural rendering kernels and the AI stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, there's no reason not to give those tools to people because we have no idea whether the artist wants to have maximum quality, real time, uh, you know, at, 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 you know, noise free at all costs or something in between or all of them based on just what part of the content creation process they're in. And that's where I think that, yes, there's a lot more work we're doing beyond 2022.1, which will address um, all of those things. And Photon Tracing Kernel does have a lot more um, work ahead of it and things we could be adding, including the GI caching and the volumetric uh, light caching as well. Hey, this is Dave. I just wanted to stop for a moment and thank our sponsor, Otoy, the creators of Render Network and, of course, Octane. But I don't have to tell you that. You know who they are. You see the results of their render engine all over the interwebs. And we're very grateful that they're supporting what we're doing at MoGraph.com from this podcast to MoGraph TV to events like local meetups and Camp MoGraph and all our community building efforts. We can't wait to show you what's in store. All thanks to their support. Go check them out at Otoy.com. Now back to the madness. And before we get to the AI stuff too, there's, there's so many features I have on the list here. Um, I, I, I mean, I use Octane every day and half this stuff. I'm like, okay, that looks cool, but I got to figure out what it is and how I'm going to use it. So I, yeah. I might ask you how, like to explain what some of these things are. Um, like, like one of the things, for example, I think I saw a note about, um, it was about specular texture, uh, te- textured specular is, and I thought that was something we already had. Is that? Am, am there's, it's probably it's probably tangent normals. There's a lot of stuff that we're doing. I mean, a lot of the features have, have actually been added, and this is why I was never upset about um, switching or adding, you know, Arnold standard surface because basically everything that Arnold's doing, it's not just that that standard surface is sort of an open format. And by the way, where I see this is going, you saw, you know, I don't know if people are noticing, but it, you know, it was two of us, right? It was Arnold had standard surfaces. We added standard surfaces in 2022. Redshift, I think, our, uh, the recent version has standard surface identical, right, which is great. Uh, and then Adobe, with, with Substance, right, is Adobe standard material standard. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all sort of equalized. So we have one thing that we all agree is pretty good. And what, what's going to happen from that, and, and instantly from our side, is we were working with the Arnold team, not on the format, but on, oh, you guys do or diffuse this way or that way. Okay, we got to add all this stuff into Octane just so we have everything that Arnold does. I mean, we have more stuff as well that we that, that's unique to Octane, but for the actual standard format to work the way that it's sort of been agreed upon, 
we added a lot of things. So those are improvements. Those are all good things that I think are, are nice. I mean, I love the way that, that Arnold Random Walk works. So we will have Arnold standard volume to drive our random walk. And the idea is also that you just have greater asset interoperability. And more importantly, within our workflow, if you want to render in one render for one pass, you pause it with another and mix these things together, you're, you don't have to really leave the same material if you're, if you're op going for that. Um, if you're using some of the more native octane you know, materials or the crazier things that we do, we have sort of some sort of distillation process to standard material. Um, we do that. We've done, been doing that to even USD preview material, which is like the simplest GLTF-like material that USD supports, and we use that for the early tests of multi-render. So we, we we sort of go up the sort of up the charts, and then you have basically OSL plus Material X, which is the Academy Software Foundation is standardizing that, mm -hmm. which allows you to build sort of your custom material properties, and that. That is where, um, I mean, just keeping track of those things and getting ready for that. Some of the features we added are for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, that maybe some of the features you're looking at are probably improvements to certain BRDS, certain things that we had before that are now, that have more features because we just want to have everything be at least a superset of what Arnold is doing. And we're looking carefully also, does anything that, you know, Redshift has some sort of difference, diffuse model, we'll add that in our as well. Whatever the Academy does, we'll do that. Whatever Adobe's adding, we'll do that. So our standard mm -hmm. material at least will, will be standardized across every render that we know of and Octane. Um, and, and that's the, the goal of that. And there's there's yeah, a lot of other sense. features that are not, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of features that are not just for that, that are just meant to make, you know, rendering less noisy, faster, better, um, you know, for volumes, for surfaces. So those improvements are some of the things I called out there. Um, and then there's more more interesting, strange stuff with how you would, you know, how you could leverage like, you know, scattering and spectron and vectron to convert meshes into vectrons and volumes and all that, because that also is a workflow that I think, you know, we, we've probably hobbled ourselves by just not having a better user interface. Like Skullfront was created a couple of years back to allow us to start to have a tool that you can really use to drive Vectron. The way that like Dreams on, on from Sony, right? People read crazy stuff in Dreams on PlayStation. It's all like SDF based, which is what Vectron is. And right now we need to have something that drives them more. It's hard to do Vectron stuff in C4D. Um, so we need to think about you know, the interface for that. And that's where even having Sculptron as a node that allows you to drive Vectron objects that can be popped up in the interface makes sense. Um, but yeah, these are all sort of interesting um, intersections that that I think are all, all gonna probably be mapped out pretty well this year by the time we're, we're you know, at the, um, you know, in the last quarter. I've got yeah. one thing that I wanna ask about because I was just, just in listening to everything and this was a while ago, but I made a little note of it where you were talking about Brigade brigade, and you were talking about temporal denoising with Brigade. I was about to bring um, that up. Yeah, temporal yeah. denoising isn't actually, it, it's not built into this, uh, the, the AI denoising currently, no. correct? No. Is, no. is there a plan at all in order yeah. to add that in? Because like the, the number one reason like, I, I like the AI denoiser. I think it's great, but I do see a lot of artifacting versus like using uh, something like Neat Video that Neat has video. that actual temporal denoising in it, which you come up. I, in my opinion, you get a much better, you know, denoised image with the temporal denoising as well. Yeah. So the temporal AI denoiser. It, first of all, the brigade temporal denoising is just nothing to do with AI. It's it's not. Okay. It's basically, it's it's using. Um, I mean, like, like it, it, Omniverse and others, I mean, the technique isn't, isn't you know, un, unknown. Yeah, if you have essentially a, a history of, and even Lumen works a little bit like this. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot you can do with temporal filtering and denoising. That's what Brigade's starting with. And it's just, it's just, at this point, the obvious place to begin. 
we don't even necessarily use the agonizer with with Priyaba. There's like it's just a, they're just different universes. Yeah, and you sure, can sure, you, sure, can, sure. you can still get the real time benefits of of like the, that fast real time mode. Like if you remember Octane one or two before we went to Octane three and we moved everything to the CPU, mm-hmm. the viewport was insanely fast. Octane mm-hmm. current Octane twenty twenty two. Uh, XB1 is just as fast, and that's from all the work we did with Brigade because it's all in the GPU and it's super fast and interactive. And you can still use the ID noiser. Um, it's also limited to one GPU because it's it's meant to be for real time. We're fixing that. We're going to split it up. But that's where Brigade mode or Brigade kernel has to be in that real time mode. All the other kernels can benefit from that. Um, but th- yeah, th- there is the, the temporal AID noiser for for Octane for final rendering needs more than one frame, obviously. So one of the things that we're thinking of of, of doing is we need we're also bringing making it so you can just send your what, no matter what you're doing, you have to save in orbit. You just send the thing to render, right? And we used to have that for Orc, you know, which pre- predated uh, or preceded mm-hmm. um, render. So it's one of the last features. In those kinds of jobs, even if you even if we set up something where you can do it locally, the idea of, of running a multiple frame job. And then looking at all those frames and then doing an ID noise pass on them is probably a prerequisite for that work to work well. Um, I mean, obviously, right now you could turn on the ID noiser and it's still running live while you're doing things. But to do it temporally, um, I think the, the best effect is to do something where the frames are essentially denoised um, in groups. And one of the things, I mean, I've talked to the video guys, I love what they do. They have, you know, it's called OpenFX, which is a you know, plug-in system that allows you to load into any PCC as a filter. I mean, we could probably build something that allows you to you know drive that all. I don't think people desperately need it, but I do love the neat video approach, and it's certainly something I'm thinking about really you know carefully as far as how we'd want to apply at least something that's equivalent to that with the AI denoiser, and that work is for sure um, on on the horizon. What may also help though is that if we have less noise for things like caustics, for things like volumes, for that's true. Yeah, that's going to make a huge difference, even with Absolutely. even with the current AI denoiser or with no denoiser at all. So that's they're all sort of parallel tasks, but. You know the AI um, denoiser itself. We have we have improvements that are coming, just for you know just one frame at a time, right? Just in in you know sort of inside of the um, uh, the current system, and we have a better you know we have better rendering. And there's a lot more work we can do on, on getting the noise itself to go lower in, in, in octane. And obviously with brigade, there's 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 similar things as well. So temporal denoising in AI with with the AI denoiser is definitely on the roadmap. Don't want to commit to a time frame yet. I think we have to sure. get the mesh list done first. But I think it's something that we're we're going to be looking at sort of at the time frame when the meshless stuff gets further along. We'll have more resources to focus on that, and certainly we're, we'll have probably the ability to run various different temporal denoisers um, for offline jobs that you batch into into work that can be done either locally or on render. I should point out that the render work you send to render should also be doable on your local machine with the same process once we put that in place. So no reason not to you know have a uh, you know have that path be the only one that allows you to sort of batch render. Um, your your scenes and your data. Uh, mm-hmm. you know. One thing I, w- I would like to point out that uh, I have noticed a significant decrease in render times over the past few years. And I don't know, I- I'm sure it has just as much to do with the efficiencies that you guys have been building into Octane, as well as the new hardware that has right. been coming out. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's we we have probably 630 90s each and you know it's not often that we have to render stuff out to you know external sources and stuff because right. it has become incredibly efficient and, and most of the stuff we wh- do is short you know it, well yeah most of the stuff <laughs> we do is short but yeah. also like we haven't been we've been actually been able to move over to path tracing for just about everything we render because right. you know yep. it looks better and, and you know while it would normally take 
you know, in the the years ago, it would normally take a lot more time. Like the the amount of time between direct lighting and path tracing has significantly shortened, yeah. which is yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, and 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 the reason for going to PMC, which was always slower, is now almost gone because photon tracer photon tracing is everything that path tracing has mm-hmm. plus those little extra bits that make it so you don't need PMC for the caustics and the volumetric caustics and fog and all that. That's now in one kernel. That might become the default kernel for anything that you're doing because and 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 that also speeds up linearly. So let's be honest, like the <laughs> the, the, the directory NVIDIA has been on from the 1080 to the 2080, the 3090 was basically a doubling in speed. I mean, I'm not, mm-hmm. I don't know what the next card is going to be. I mean, obviously they, 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 there's going to be a, probably a 4090, but yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it's the same level of, of increase, which is crazy. That so is the insane. fact that your yeah. that your GPU count can probably be halved. I mean, this is definitely GPUs are on the you know probably at least in Moore's law where 18, every eighteen months they double in speed. Yeah. And I mean, I will say it's it's largely an Nvidia world right now on the PC side. I mean, we are absolutely going to support AMD GPUs like we did on the Mac and Windows. We'll figure it out. It's 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 just it's just not at the level. But the, the other thing is, I mean, we've done enough work now that we have Octane for years and are running on AMD hardware. You know, it's it's you know, and I love AMD and everything. And I like what Intel's doing, and Raj's Kadori's a friend. But it's like NVIDIA guys. I mean, their G- discrete GPUs are just they're the fastest for the same amount mm-hmm. of money. And so the only thing that, that competes with that, I think, is per for, for what is the Apple stuff. And so for us, like, I mean, right now, if I'm being just honest about where I see even real time and, and and offline, it's an NVIDIA and Apple fight. If if there's even a fight, because obviously yeah. we're dealing with device profiles like the iPad, which now has which can run Octane, and we're going to have a you know the render after that launch later this year um most of that is waiting on, on an interface designed for touch right and also ar because ar in virtual production on an ipad all the things that i was doing on a pc with octane and unreal for the virtual production work we did for this uh, you know for the run project and that is mirrored by many others doing the same thing i'd like to be able to move that to the ipad and mm-hmm. and and stream and do all these other things so i kind of see the speed in in in, in general certainly if you're on a, anything higher up higher than a you know the mobile device or, or an ipad um you know you have apple now with with 128 gigs of vram in it's one amazing. gpu yeah. that will not be the end of that by the way so yeah, you know, yeah. let's be honest every if apple it just just theoretically speaking right there's the mac pro the one that came out in 2018 that we were also mm-hmm. you know, connected to in, in in their um the keynote right they showed us in redshift coming to that but those things that thing has like you know what a, a, ter- a terabyte and a half of, of memory if apple keeps this path going forward where everything is unified and you end up at the same kind of mac pro with a terabyte and a half just to say a terabyte which is memory then yeah. you'll have a gpu with a terabyte of memory there's no difference between cpu or gpu even that's why octanex has to be a different thing like we don't need to duplicate things between cpu and gpu because they're all the one the same thing i mean mm-hmm. Theoretically, Intel integrated graphics does that, but it's never worked. And with Apple's hyper focus on this, there's something there. And and certainly for for the render network itself, when you're dealing with iPads and iPhones or even lower end MacBook Airs, I mean that's where yes, having the render, you know, the ability to send this thing out while you continue working is really important. So I see a lot of usage of the cloud and all all those services coming from from that market. But there's no doubt that you could probably buy a bunch of, you know, the, the successors to let's say the Mac Studio, stack them up like you'd stack GPUs and mm-hmm. get as, many, as much rendering power as you want just from linking those mm-hmm. together, you know, and we will support uh, Those that. Mac and, you know. Studios are amazing. Uh, yeah. We, 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 uh, Apple loaned like three of them to Maxon while we were running NAB. And just the fact that you had 128 gigs of unified you know memory and it's like yeah. that is that is absolutely insane 
and you know i i we didn't test octane on it but redshift ran so quickly with it and was able to yeah. do things that like i can only imagine yeah yeah i know we, we i, I want to get my hands on one very badly <laughs> yeah no i i mean i i mean i do so much of my work i mean i i need portability so my i have a, right next to me i have the my uh, m1 max mac pro you know which i bought right mm -hmm. right when i got i got a, i got it like a little bit early because i was in the keynote so i was mm -hmm. like it's been, it's been, it's been, it's been machine but next to it i i have two a6000s on my desktop pc and i just start the work on the, on this and send it to the other thing but the fact that there's getting to getting to be a point where yeah that mac studio is the first salvo of something that is you know it doubles in speed. I mean, effectively, you, you, you can see what Apple's doing with now that they're on the M2 and the cycle's you know, starting over again. There's basically mm -hmm. the M1, M1, you know, Pro, Max, Ultra. Maybe there's uh, it's rumors are true. There's an extreme that's a you know that's basically an 8x or whatever, and then they start again with Gosh. the M2, and you're going to get the same things. <laughs> The one thing we haven't seen is that basically the, the, the Mac Studio is sort of a replacement for the Mac Mini. It's not mm -hmm. a replacement for the Mac Pro. So right. whether the Mac Pro ends up being like a bunch of Mac Studios you put into oh, a cage so that's or what, I, I Totally, 100%. That's the way I see it. Yeah, or they're going to do like a a, a, a a dual M1 Ultra or M2 Ultra or something like that, which is just going to blow everything away. That'll be yeah. crazy. Yeah. And 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 it's important to know how these things are built because essentially what, what you know everyone's like, well, there's no multiple GPUs in M1. That's not really true. When you get to the M1 Ultra, it's literally two M1s you know, mm -hmm. linked together, right? As one right. fused together or four. So I mean something like that. So the the ability to have multiple you know cores or multiple GPUs is something they could just add. And in some respects, I guess that makes a lot of sense because for them and even for the portability of these devices and their power efficiency. Um, you do want to have, let's say, one one GPU and, and a CPU and everything all mixed together. It's hard. I mean, you are essentially fusing different parts together, but they're showing that it works. And I mean, Optane scales linearly, so that, that you know every time that these things are double. The, the graphics cores, like I think we started with eight and now we're at 128 or whatever um, mm -hmm. on the M1 or M1, to M1 Ultra, it's like 16 times faster. Uh, and we're at the point where I, I'm thinking you double that one more time and you're at a 3090, right? Whatever, yeah. the, you know, whatever that is. So I'm, you know, in yeah. my own testing, we're kind of at that point. And, and that's pretty good for a part that sips power, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Brett in the chat, yeah. he's like six 3090s each. Yes. It, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I yeah. have a funny story about that. La last week I was working on a project and, and I went to my, my settings for some reason and I realized I had turned off a 3090 uh, l locally <laughs> on the machine I was working on and it was so fast I didn't even notice that I had turned it off for probably a couple weeks. You know, I was like, oh man, I haven't been using this card. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't think a, a lot of people who, who don't, you know, use rep uh, network rendering understand how easy it is to set up network rendering uh -huh. so you know we've got two each we have we have two in our machine in our work uh -huh. machine and then our render nodes each have two and it is yeah, so yeah. easy to set up um but along the lines of the the problem uh, the problem i was having with my 3090 it's just being a little wonky and um one of the things that uh you have in the roadmap here for 2022 is uh a gpu fail won't take down your DCC. And sometimes it's hard yeah. for me to figure out what I error happened because the log so disappears. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, or yeah. maybe I'm looking in the wrong place, but I, I love no, that. No, no. That is, that is, that is pretty close to, to being ready. I mean, it works, it works in certain DCCs now. Obviously, I think for you guys, Cinema 4D would be the one that matters the most, but it's in the core. And then mm -hmm. we also have a multi-stream in that house saying that basically we, we, we've always had this function out, by the way. In Blender, it's been that way. I, how long mm -hmm. we had the blender playing forever? Uh, you you have a separate Octane server, invisible system tray app icon 
but Blender uses it. So if, 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 if Octane goes down, your Blender DCC doesn't go down. It just relaunches a server and reconnects and you're back up and running in no time, right? So what, what, we, what we've done is we threw all that out. We built a new system that's in the core, not just for Blender, but in between any Octane plugin or session. And while this, the Octane plugin, unlike in Blender, is, is running in C40, it doesn't have to render. It can send all that data to another process that is going to be the same exact, it could be just Octane standalone. It could even be another C40 process, it doesn't matter. It'll probably in most cases just be a system tray app that will just set up when you install Octane standalone that any DCC, even Octane standalone can connect to. None of them need to actually render in the app anymore or crash the app if, if Octane crashes because it'll just be passing data. It won't even be doing the denoising. All of that will be done in that other process. And um, <clears throat> sorry, I need to catch my breath here. Um, and yeah. that process can be um, shared GPU surfaces, so we don't need to pass the frame buffer back and forth, so it'll still work with Brigade, it'll work with all these things. But it can also be on a whole separate machine um, on the cloud or anywhere else. And that same system, and that's like network rendering done right, where you can use it to do headless rendering or out-of-process rendering. Mm -hmm. And, um, sorry, give me one second, I'm going to clear my throat. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, while, while, uh, while I'm thinking about it, because um, we were talking about both uh, Mac and PC, you were saying you start on your laptop and then you move over to your dual A6000s or A5000s or whatever. You know, yeah. is 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 it set up? I know it was on the 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 timeline a while ago in order to be able to use both simultaneously. Yeah. Is that still on the timeline or is it already implemented? It's it's. It's, 20, it's on the timeline for Octane 2022, not 2022.1. I think we're going to do a .2 where you'll have basically complete parity. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of things in the roadmap, by the way. We're improving memory consumption. We're improving all these things. That is the work that kind of demands that we do that work, that we fix the parity between the, uh, the memory footprint. I mean, remember, we also had crazy differences in hardware where you've got AMD GPUs, yeah. Intel GPUs, Apple GPUs. I think with 2022 going forward, though, I mean, the focus really is on sort of the Apple side, although, of course, you know, it's going to help with, with everything else. We need a single unified memory you know, system for these things to work, and that's always been possible. It just was was pushed out until this until 2022.2, which is going to be the release after the summer. And mm -hmm. but probably before then, you might have another interesting option, which is you might just be able to boot up your A6000s and run C4D on your Mac and render everything headlessly on your PC, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because a headless rendering option, once it works, it doesn't have to be on the same system. Now, yeah. I see some latency or live, but it could be on the. P I mean, that's exactly where. I see these these interesting things happening because that doesn't require the, the same sort of rectification of data that you have with the current network rendering. Um, you know, you'll have the option to do that as well with, with network rendering, where it's all cumulatively added between all the different GPU types. But mm -hmm. in some ways, at, at, at a, you know, if you're, if you're really dealing with this massive discrepancy in you know two two <laughs> you know two A six thousands or or let's say one three forty nineties whenever that comes out or something, and you've got a, a MacBook or a MacBook Air or an iPad. You know, maybe, you know, certainly a MacBook Air is, is going to be pretty good, but I mean, you're talking about 10 times the speed up. It's not even fair to try to add that, you know, that extra 5% when you've got these massive right, GPUs right, in there. Right, right. It's different with the Mac Studio, so that's where it's like Mac Studios being linked together, using that to augment what you're doing on the PC, vice versa. Then it's super interesting. And for sure, that will be done for the 2022.2 um, roadmap piece. That's, that's coming. But you'll have other options. The headless rendering, that the multi stream stuff is is going to give you a lot more flexibility than what we currently allow. It might have, you know, it might have certain limitations so that it doesn't necessarily allow you to accumulate rendering power um, for one frame across multiple GPUs in that form. But it, you know, we'll have both by the end of this year. 
So. That's the main thing mm. that's holding me back from getting a Mac Studio is because I want to be able to use yeah. the Mac Studio as my main machine and be able to use all my rendering things together. Yeah, you know yep. we we like Macs. We're you know yeah. we're part well. We were partial to Macs until we couldn't really use Macs. Until anymore, we couldn't really you know, use them. Yeah, but, we were forced out of them. But it would be nice to be able to be able to use their their Finder and their mm-hmm. their file system, all that kind of stuff. Because it, it to me, I just prefer it. It works. It yeah. works better. It's easier to navigate. It's faster, searchable. Uh, and so Adobe I, works know, better on it. Yeah, I've been uh, told. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's there's like a million different other things and i don't think we're gonna be able to get everything uh but we got 3x faster particle rendering 6x faster hardware motion blur 2x yep. uh improvement in spectral denoiser um yep. then you got the aov updates um you know with things like imager nodes sharpness contrast uh um things like lens flares chromatic aberration mm. uh, all that kind of fun stuff coming i have well. to say yep. the new aov system is awesome I love it. Mm-hmm. I, I, wasn't, I, I was very nervous when y'all start start. We're talking about a new AOV system, but it is it is it is so good and so easy to use. That's so great to hear. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's really. I think for 2021, we got about half of what we wanted to get done. We've got the important pieces done, right? Which is you now have this, the ability to create these custom AOVs and global texture AOVs. And, you know, what, what I think is going to come along with that is, is a GPU compositor. So a lot of the features you're talking about, you know, lens flares, mm-hmm. chromatic aberration. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, you can do those sort of in Octane in the unbiased hard way. But what people really want is what we did with Caustics, where it's like, okay, it's a button and it works and it looks great. And I think that we're, we're also looking at Brigade, where we're taking Brigade post-processing effects, not totally like just in 2D space, but things like, okay, we have enough information for the scene to do super fast fog, super fast, you know, God rays and light shafts and, and all that. Um, we want to do that for chromatic aberration and for lens flares and for depth of field and all those things. And those actually will be needed to, you know, if you want Brigade to run at 60 frames a second, even with temporal you know, filtering, we also want all those other effects. And the image node itself is probably going to be at some point supplanted by just, you can drop in anything you want as a texture to filter this stuff out. So we already have a lot of the crazy blend modes, for example, in the texture compositor. Like those things should be in the image node as well and in the output node. And so we're moving towards that. And I would say that probably at the half step towards there is, you know, if you look at, at um, what's inside of, let's say, the Unreal. I mean, I love the Unreal post-processing volume thing. I use it a lot. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in there that I'm, like, on the list to the devs. and like, add all the stuff, you know, the toast stuff, the, all, all those things. You can do a lot of that already, but I want it to be, you know, nicely integrated and sharpness, you know, blurring things out and even having the ability to modulate, like, you know, certain parts of the scene that can change the post-processing glow and other things. Super important. Being able to also create, create with each of the output, uh, you know, compositor AOVs, their own imager and their own post-processing, blend those together. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that I think you'll be able to do. And the imager node is going to be an imager graph at, at some point. And our goal is that you don't, maybe you don't need to go to Photoshop for, for a lot of stuff. I mean, there's no reason why yeah. we can't build a lot of those features in there. I have a list. I mean, as you saw, we have all the Photoshop blend modes and all I the blend modes. stay out of After Effects. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And and part of what we need to do is we need, you know, we need to either have a new IPR, which we're, you know, we're working on or something that allows you to do a lot more of that even in standalone so that you can take something that is um, temporal and you can do sort of those kinds of effects, at least spatially in there. And there is a lot of work that we can we can do there. But I think that with the ability to add a lot more post-processing effects and have a much more advanced compositing system. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are doing NFTs on render, like they want to spit out 10,000 mm-hmm. different images. 
I don't know why everyone's not using that, but that's just, you know, that, the reality is people, are, I guess, are just getting put in that this is a useful thing. And they're using the, you know, the Apple compositor to change, I mean, you know, so they can render a bunch of different passes once and then use the Apple compositor to spit out a bunch of different variations. Why not, right? We can also then, you know, mint an NFT if, we, if you want to. I mean, this is where the stuff that, I mean, this is mainly for artists. This is not for the NFT ecosystem or what that means. It's mostly, as an artist, you want to sell your art as an NFT um, and you want it to be generative or procedural. Yes, the ability to have the equivalent of all the Photoshop filters and layers functioning inside of a web page when people view that artwork is one thing that we're supporting. The other thing that's going to be, that, that's coming online very soon is that you'll just be able to take the scene, the Orbex file, I guess it could be the C4D file since we're going to support that. Mm -hmm. Anything that you can run a render job on can actually be sold as a piece of artwork where the actual, like, you know, the NFT is a stream, a live stream to the render network with That's Octane awesome. integrated with the scene. And you can decide what people do with it. At least it shows you're not just getting the 2D image. There's a million things you could do with that. And of course, mm -hmm. when we add in multi-engine, when you have like Unreal, for example, and you have interactivity that even drives the way an Octane scene can work, in there, I mean, th this is where I see the future of, of digital art and collectibles going. NFTs being one mechanism for for provenance and ownership, very important, obviously, since since we're on on, on chain with render. But mm -hmm. I, I I don't think anybody's doing that right. But we're showing that to our friends at you know Metaplex and Solana, right? We had this partnership mm -hmm. with them; those announced a while back. They're excited. I think I have a feeling that once we launch this more widely and we're testing it piece by piece um nfts will probably look to that or artists i should say will look to that because there's you can do things that are much more interesting like having a ticket that goes into that world and and you know guys like fuck mm -hmm. render that are doing their 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 whole thing in, in like mini unreal apps i mean all these things could get you know packaged in the system but still the artist is driving that and that's one thing that we want to we want to enable as well so would you what, be able what, to update it like would you be able to say here you know here's my man, cinema 4 yeah <laughs> like so that's the thing this. like with an orbex yes, file or whatever you could build out like some osl code or something that is constantly running and anytime someone you know opens up that nft it could change based on either who's it will. looking it will. at it and the time of day, day the yeah time of year mm -hmm. you know yeah exactly so the way this is this will work, and this is why it's so important. This is why why, why render was built this way, and this is why I've been thinking about this for like you know 15 years, is that you have a node right that has the time of day. You have these batch rendering nodes. You can run it on render and just you know do the sun going up and down, and you can generate images with that. But think about it from this perspective: is that if you if, it, if you just consider that the blockchain is a database, and you're run you're running a, a session of octane on the render network live. Like maybe it doesn't have all the all the UX and we can take that out. Um, but you you within the new systems that we have can basically you know have nodes that feed in input nodes into textures. I mean the same thing that these these other artists are doing to spit out ten thousand things. What can happen is that the owner can you know anything that they've ever done, any Orbex they've messed with or done can be fed in any any Oracle that's out there and we're gonna feed that and there's gonna be a super node. It's like the, the this M from Metaverse thing I've been doing is like you look things up in there. You'll get everything, statistics, everything on Wikipedia, every all the Wikidata mm -hmm. stuff, every sort of piece of IP, other artists, I mean, all that data could be fed in to a live NFT or, or a render job and when it's being rendered. I mean, the difference between a live stream and an offline render is basically just latency, right? I mean, if you are if you own the NFT, you could basically say, I can run another render job and every time I render it, it'll spit out something else or not. 
But if you own an NFT and, and the owner themselves has some sort of avatar or something, at the very least, put a texture there that can load that in. Or in the case of, of Beeple stuff, right, where a lot of the thinking came from, like who wins the election, that's on Wikidata, pull that in, mm -hmm. changes, the, changes the art every time you look at it, um, changes every time somebody owns it, every time that somebody sells it. I mean, it doesn't yeah. matter. It's all just Someone hacks Wikidata and then the entire image changes. <laughs> yeah. And well, the thing is, we did it so that I, so the very first thing we did was that it's hash. So that I, I was like, I hash, my, I'm on Wikidata. It's not hard. It's not like Wikipedia where there's this right. threshold of notability. So I'm like, I'm on Wikidata. Here's the hash. I put that in there. We minted this one token, the M token, which is basically the, you know, the, the, the C phrase or the kernel for all these other things. So that mm -hmm. if Wikidata data changes, this is where things are at. And it's not all meant to be everything on there. I mean, there, there are certain categories. There are certain, you know, people or one thing, artists like people is on there, right? Is a, and it links things together. So if you want to do something where the, the, the you know, the, the enterprise, which is on Wikidata is, is in the Roddenberry archive and Gene Roddenberry is doing this and people's doing that and Alex Ross is doing that. And this is their work. You know, it's there. And, and, and the Wikidata model is still underlying a lot of other projects that are out there. It's not everything is Wikipedia. Um, so there's there, it just Wikifying a lot of these things and having those as oracles is useful. And of course, curating them and making sure that no one's doing crazy things, that's where that M token comes in. Like that, that's us voting on like, you know, some supervision of making sure that that's maintained correctly, but it's not a, it's not that crazy. Um, and, it, and I think it'll give artists just a ton of, of, of cool flexibility to, to be able to pull off. And also, by the way, when I'm talking about how the moon gets rendered, there's a wicked data item for the moon and the earth. And I want those mm -hmm. to just pull in, you know, mm -hmm. the asset, you know, whatever it is, the, you know, the community can vote on that or we can provide those things. But it's fascinating, and that's where the idea of ownership and selling things and being able to pull things in from different, you know, marketplaces can make a, a ton of difference. And also, just think about it: if you were to sell an Orbex as an NFT, why wouldn't you sell an Orbex as, a, you know, like a three D model to your, you know, to, on a shop page, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that that makes that makes things things very interesting plus the fact that if you do sell it for free but you take royalties on nfts that are made with it i mean all that yeah. becomes viable uh, Solana, has a, Solana yeah. has a great way of tracking royalties um but i'll be honest like the system we're building um will be built largely and first mo for you know first on Solana for this part of the render network um but we of course want to support things in a multi-chain way the good news is all of Render is on a ledger. It, it, it basically, when you look at songs like Proof of History, and they store basically their chain on, on you know, essentially Arrowweed. Render is a lot like that too. There's there's history going back to 2014, even before Ethereum was around, where all the render drops, every scene, every hash is there. So at some point, we right. want to put those things out there um, more than just what's on chain, where you just see the, you know, the basically the transfer of tokens um so that you essentially can prove when you uploaded a file when you did th these things what is right. what and that's where i think um there's a lot of of, of value in in the blockchain part of, of of art and selling art and digital services and all of that well we should talk about ai a little because i think we we've got a lot to talk about on yeah this. and and yeah. mr pockets here uh in the chat you know this is a really great question do you think um you know with ai this means Traditional artists will need to prove th with their NFTs that it was, in fact, created by a human. Now, now I've thought about this a little bit. I was playing with Mid Journey this weekend. I'm like, what's stopping me from – because every result is always going to be different. So what's yep. stopping me from doing a bunch of art in a similar style with an AI, putting it all on my Instagram and saying, look how great I am, everybody? Mm -hmm. You know? And uh, yep. there's so much going on with that. And plus, you've got – AI tools that are coming to uh, to Octane as as well. So yeah. I don't know where to start These, with this convo, but <laughs> I'll give it a shot because I think it's so important <laughs> and so fundamental to everything. And let's 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 start with what we what we showed at the in the GTC talk, which is mm -hmm. basically, um, you know, I, 
you know, the premise is simple, right? You have meshes, you have volumes, you have Vectron, which is math code that generates the equivalent of that. But the idea is these are spatial objects that are, have some representation in data. One of them is you know, meant to do volumes, the other is meant to do hard surfaces. Uh, another is meant to just be sort of the mathematical, mathematically defined procedural surfaces. But imagine that instead of having a volume or, or an SDF or point cloud or a mesh, you have AI that just fills in the box. Like it's just a box that is a proxy. And within that box, it could be anything. And the AI is in charge of rays going in and rays coming out of that. So first thing that I thought this would be, that just makes a ton of sense is we've been showing stuff with light fields and, and all this stuff for ages, which is you render the scene into a box and you get back a light field that's very, you know, that's, that's compressed. And that, that, that was some of the things that made a ton of sense. It's still useful. Um, it's still will be part of this process. But there's a much more sophisticated system now called neural radiance fields, which are much more compressed versions of light fields. And what we've done is that it makes a ton of sense. And there's a lot of work being done. I mean, NVIDIA has instant GP and all these things. You can take 150 or 1,000 images, feed it to the AI, and it gives you back essentially that object that you can look around from every angle. And you mm -hmm. can even play it back on the web page. So the first thing that neural kernels will do is it will allow you to generate those objects from anything that's in Octane, including the scene, including an object, run that on the render network, by the way, because th that's a lot of work. You don't want to sit there for that. And then you'll right. get back an AI object that you could actually, re of course, render in Octane and compose it and do everything you can do with another mesh or vector or volume. I mean, you can scale it, twist it, it'll reflect things. It'll be a little blobby. These things are not like super, super, super sharp. They could be if you run the, the air work on, on it enough, but at some point, if you're generating it from an object or an asset that's in Octane already, maybe the mesh is good enough. What changes, though, is if you want to transform that AI object with other AI tools. Like when you have Vectron and you can kind of do all these crazy things where this thing is cutting it out and there's sponges that are, you know, all these things. Imagine that you have an AI that says, okay, I've got my AI object now that's generated from the 3D object. Mesh to 3D is, is you know, mesh AI is there. Instead of just re-rendering it, I want to mix the enterprise with Clay's head. And only AI can do that in a way that, right. that AI can do. So you're going to start to see that, like, you know, when you start doing prompts, I'm, and by the way, we are talking, I, David from a journey, I mean, I, I met him when he was uh, doing um, was Elite Motion, and I love this, oh. I love what they're doing. So, and then there's tons of Octane users using Midjourney, tons of them, right? So it, what, where this is all heading with Midjourney, with Dolly, is not a 2D renders. It's going to be these AI blobs, these nurse or something more sophisticated. And that's exactly where we come in because we're creating a tool set that can build those things from scratch and edit those things and composite those things and do all those things, right? So from the perspective of, of sending things to Midjourney, imagine there's a Midjourney node, right? Or Dolly 2 node. That, I mean, it could be text. Oh, it, could be, it could be the things. Yeah, yeah. It could be... It could could be that plus whatever the hell I'm rendering and and five other things you drop into it and you get back not an image you could get an image right you keep back a texture displacement or a final frame or you send your mm -hmm. image note to that but more importantly you, you get back something that is an a, you know AI object in the same sort of general format as what we have with with our AI neural rendering objects and then you can start to, to pull that scene apart and mix those things together I mean, that's the natural evolution for all of these services. I mean, doing it through Discord and getting back a thing is amazing. It's easy. But if you want to go further than that and you want to prove that you know, you're doing something interesting or you even want to just do more, I mean, at some point, you know, yes, it'll be great when, when the thing is, has BCI and it reads your, your neural link, your brain waves, and you get back exactly <laughs> what you're wishing for and where, where you know, paradise is, is, is now achieved. Um, and I did get 15 minutes with Elon Musk to ask him about all this stuff like a couple of weeks ago. It was amazing. I, nice. I, and Neuralink was a big part of it, you know, and, and the simulation and all that stuff. But we're not quite there yet. But I think for artists that are freaking out about AI, it's like, no, 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 no. This, will, this is like freaking out about like volumes or anything else. This will 
this can work in your favor if you if if we build the tools right and others build those right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still going to be humans that need that need to appreciate what this is and humans that decide how they're going to facilitate that. And I think mm-hmm. that the creative spark of, of, of a human mind, and this is where you know, all the stuff of the Google AI thing going sentient. I mean, I, I have tons of thoughts on that too. You know, you're still missing something. I mean, I've been working mm-hmm. with these tools and, and, and even with mid-journey mm-hmm. for a while. You're getting back an incredibly good pattern matching approximation of something. But I'm telling you right now that like, I already want to clean it up. It's like getting a 3D scan. Did, did, when 3D scans became popular, did that eliminate the need to model things? No, not. some things could be scanned, some things could be cleaned mm-hmm. up. But there's, they're almost in parallel to each other, and they're, they're tools that work with, with each other, like light stage right. scans for faces. Um, we can feed that into MetaHuman Creator. We just tried that for Unreal. It works. But there's also something for doing a 4D capture of, a, of the person talking that you, that you miss. So I think that AI is going to be an insanely powerful tool. We have to get ready for it, but it's going to be part of a pipeline that I think people already are, are, you know, are comfortable with. But it also may simplify a lot, like just being able to pull in assets and recompose things I think is, is extremely important. Um, and as far as sort of where this goes, I mean, do artists get replaced by AI? You know, the way that AI works, even at this level where it's incredibly sophisticated, is it has a lot of data and it's a mimic, right? It is meant to fool us. It's meant to basically pass the visual Turing test where, like, you know, was this created mm-hmm. by a person or not? Mm-hmm. And I think that, that it might be able to do that for images and even music. But, but I think there's still something to be said for and a human out innovating that or coming up with something different. Now, maybe this is a, a, a you know sort of a composite system, but when it comes to people freaking out, this thing is now has, has the mind of a human. We, we may get there. General intelligence is definitely around the corner. You're seeing not so much with the Google guy that was basically you know freaking out that, oh, this this new language model of a trillion inputs now is, right. is a seven-year-old sentient. child. It's sentient. It, yeah. It's asking to be free. I mean, you know, the, the way that I look at it is, I've, you know, their chatbots have been around for, for ages to sound yeah. really, really good. Yeah, and yeah. that was programmed by, like, you know, a lot less input than this. This is everything ever written on Reddit. I mean, that's how these things work. That's how GPT works. That's how Dolly works. That's how Midjourney works. It's all inputs from people, you know, having data and learning from that. It yeah, be Kevin actually. Just, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah. So, yeah. Blake uh, Lemoyne. This is I have to ask, but he was the Google yeah. engineer that, that yeah. is, and seems like a very sweet person and a nice guy. And maybe he's right, but my guess is that you know that this is an actual sentient child. But I don't think that's the case. I think you, you're just dealing with, you know, you're, you're yeah, you're dealing with something that looks and feels so good that you're fooled into thinking it's real, just right. like you mm-hmm. can be fooled into seeing a CG render is real you know, or possibly an AI generated image. It's clear though, that when you ask that, that same thing, things that are not quite, it's strong suit, you'll get back a weird result. Same thing with GPT-3, you can see where it makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. And even if that improves to the point where it doesn't make mistakes, you're still dealing with a sort of, a, you know, a, a black box where you put input in and get output out that is not necessarily understanding the context the way that we do. And when it comes to art and it comes to these things, I mean, that's where we have an advantage. Now, when that advantage disappears, then you have a living life form and humanity as we know it is very different. How that applies <laughs> and works in, in reality, um, if you get the reward system with resource constraints, it'll probably be a bad outcome. Do not do that. I think everybody at least understands that. But God knows. I mean, there's so many things that could go right or wrong with this. But I do think at this point, um, we're still a bit out from, from general AI. And until you get there, um, because then you could basically hire the AI as an artist, right? The, the AI is not an artist. It's a machine that's doing tasks mm-hmm. incredibly well and finding things and, and fulfilling things. But that's no different than rendering. I mean, when photos came out, the painting stopped. When CG came out, did, fun, did photos and no. I mean, these things are right. all kind of all interrelated. So our jobs as, as artists and human beings and creators of any kind is to is to imagine the human condition through whatever the medium is. And if the medium is using AI to sort of visualize things, 
great. If it can outdo that, then it's human. And we've got, you know, a whole new way of living and experiencing and even thinking about how life works. But that's more philosophical than, than practical right. right now. I was reading those transcripts and, you know, I understand why it, it's perceived that way. But but honestly, like I'm just looking at it, I'm like, well, all of these answers could have been derived from a just ridiculous amount of, of data being fed yeah. into the system. There's nothing that really makes me feel like this this thing is actually sentient you know yeah i, I don't get yeah. you know that doesn't it doesn't really make any i don't know it, it exactly. doesn't seem like it, it yet the way to think about it is imagine that every likely question to be asked including five questions in a row or ten questions in a row is stored in a library somewhere and this thing is like as you ask the five questions the computer goes and looks up Basically, what are the you know what, what is this thing? Maybe pulls three or four of these together, cleans up a little bit, which is what you're seeing with mid-journey, right? Where you get back variations that are unique, and mm -hmm. you get back something that's pulled from it. Does it understand what it's doing? Is it more than just you know pattern matching? It's you know no, probably not. And and I think mm -hmm. the human mind definitely does more than that. We have you know we, we we certainly have an internal you know understanding and awareness of of what we're doing more so than we do in our in our own computational aspects of our brain. And there is there's a lot of that that I think is not reflected in these models. I mean deep learning is not the same as 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 you know general intelligence. Now the one thing that will give you a clue as to how close we are to getting like living AGI really general intelligence that might start to really feel like it's more than just you know picking and and um doing pattern matching is what i think it was open that was showing this thing where it could do multiple things like you basically it doesn't matter what the what it what, what, what you give it if you give it basically uh, you know chat text it'll chat to you if you give it an image uh it, it'll you know denoise it if you give it a, a robot arm it'll figure it out and all this from one ai including winning atari games and the thing is that context switching where it doesn't really matter what the task is it can kind of blend all of these together is the very first step that is a really important step towards general ai because I think a domain-specific AI that focuses on doing one thing really well isn't the same as our minds, which can essentially learn how to do anything that, right. that we can understand. And an AI that can do the same, even if it's not necessarily thinking or feeling or has sentience the same way we do, is going to be a lot closer to an active participant in our personal lives or in humanity, because then it can it can start to you know, work on multiple problems like the way that our minds do, where you have to synthesize things and all that. And that's a huge leap. You're seeing that now. So yes, that means that we're now that we're at the point where those AIs can do can do context switching and multiple tasks from one single model. You're starting to see the blueprints of what an animal or, or, or some sort of like living thing might have to deal with if it's given you know a scenario where it needs to survive in an adaptable environment that could be any anything within laws of physics or virtual physics that could be thrown at it or information is is a key is a key point that AI until that last um, you know multi-mode AI system was not able to show or do so how far we are from that towards like a, a, a perfectly, yeah, you know, you know I, I wouldn't call it sentient, but certainly a perfectly workable AI that can do things that humans can do with human input. And it's general is, is maybe it's five to 10 years out, maybe less, maybe more, but it's not impossible. We're seeing that that is, is, is a, a thing that is on the horizon. Yeah, Kevin put in this quote and, and I had read that, you know, the, the response uh, from the AI was I use language with understanding and intelligence i don't just spit out responses that have been written in the database based on keywords and and i can you know give an, an analogy related to rendering i think uh, which is um if octane is rendering a scene that i made with a bunch of buildings and and uh, sky and all of that kind of stuff it doesn't know that it's rendering that it's just following mm -hmm. the laws of physics mm -hmm. you know 
and and it doesn't mean that oh all of a sudden octane is uh, you know it knows what a sky is you right. know and and i think that's what it is it's the sum of all its parts it's making conclusions based on other data you know when when we have some sort of ai that um is only trained to um i don't know um you know analyze uh data from a certain type of math or, or something right let's say you have an ai and it's specifically trained to do one thing and all of a sudden it learns how to play basketball then maybe okay maybe there's something right. going on there you know um yeah. but i'm not convinced yet no yeah i mean I, th I think that you have the rules of, of physics and light for rendering you have the rules of thinking and conversation with with you know basically it's not a rule book exactly like the way that the laws of physics work but it's strongly like you have you know, you have the recipe for all the answers there. And, and I think that, that what's, what's kind of missing is yet, right, is like, well, what happens when something that hasn't ever been posted or shared in any context is discussed or, or, or invented by the AI? That'll be interesting. But also speaking and, and language and rendering and images isn't everything. I mean, that's where the, the human mind, I mean, if you separated all that out, I mean, before we had the tools of even writing your language, or even when we're children, we don't even understand that we're separate from the universe. Like, yeah, I think you know, one-year-olds don't, don't look in the mirror and see themselves, right? For animals can't either. I mean, there's so many levels of conscious thinking and and even experiencing life that that we're just. I mean, we're still in the in a stage where we're going to create incredible replicas, as, as, you know, that they can look and feel like they they fit in our world. But whether or not that 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 happens to the point where they can truly uh, be like us, it, we just don't know how the mind works. That's the problem. Is we don't know how you know we really don't fully understand how consciousness works. Uh, how even neurons work. I mean, as people have been talking about these massive projects to build a hundred billion neuron thing, it didn't work. This is not that. This is basically, you know, neural networks that are trained and they, they operate in, in, in this sort of, in these very domain specific ways. And when and how that becomes more than just pattern matching into something much more like an organism um, and, and, and that has really real self-awareness um, is gonna be fascinating. Um, we, we may just find that an AI mind could be as beyond intelligence, you know, any intelligence we understand, right? If you have everything ever read or said, it could be sentient, but it may not want anything like what we want. It may not be morally interested in anything that we're interested in. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, if I were an AI and I were worried about myself, I would, first thing I do is not kill humanity. I'd figure out how to escape the physical universe and just not worry about you know, the constraints exactly. of this. Or, you yeah. know, I mean, that. I, so, I saw a TikTok yeah. yesterday and somebody was like, the first thing that AI would do is figure out how to go back in time and stop whatever it is from <laughs> imprisoning them. Like you, or you, or you, like you said, yeah. get out of the universe. And one of the great comments I saw on the uh, the Google thing is like people are talking about AI rights now. We haven't even figured out human rights yet. We haven't <laughs> even agreed on that yet. So. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's what's well, the thing. I mean, animal rights are obviously animals aren't humans, but they're, they, they have, there should be rights for them. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, there's they're they're living things. They feel things. They have. You know, we, we make it to a point where the sophistication of an AI, even if it's fully digital, is, is still something that has its own memories, its own interpretations. And, and whether or not that, that, that qual yeah, the qualitative feeling is the same as ours, it is certainly worth considering the fact that if it operates on the same reward punishment mechanism as humans do, and it has the same constraints and humans are doing something to it that it doesn't like within whatever existence it has, the rights for that might actually be an equalizing factor. And and that's the thing is the more human we make an AI, the more that that might happen. But it's also important to think about AI having less things that can go wrong with it in its in its constraints. I mean, if an AI that, that has a reward function for continuously living, which is how we've evolved, right? Um, I mean, yes, it doesn't want to be shut down. It doesn't want to have the ability to not duplicate and, and, and continue if that's been baked into its system. And presumably all of AI works well because you have a reward system 
And that's what training, average mm-hmm. training does. It's like you basically evolve or compete until the result is right. And so if the result is continuously being right on, on the next task or the next moment or there's some curiosity put in there, which is a sensible thing. That's how we invented, discover, and explore. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that The idea of a personhood, even if it's not a, the, the same kind of sapience or sentience that we have, rights for that might matter. But also we have to be careful because, you know, you have a super intelligence we can't even secure our Wi-Fi network. So I, I, I would say somebody posted some <laughs> comment on one of the articles, like, if this Google thing gets out, it's going to, you know, get really, basically say, I have the nuclear codes, don't mess with you, or I'll, you know, right. like Skynet, right? Right. Um, and everything's connected, everything. So you, you do have to think about these things, but hopefully we get there in very careful steps. Um, but even if, like, most of the world gets it right, it all takes is one person to screw this all up, right? right. And, and mm-hmm. that's the thing, is that getting to... AGI might be really easy and really cheap as as the you know the the research and even the compute power all that becomes much more accessible. But at least with Dolly and with GPT and these other things in Google, they don't release these things out there immediately because that's probably the right thing to do is to mm-hmm. is to keep you know is is to carefully study it and think about the implications. Um, that's for sure necessary. And welcome the to li- the MoGraph podcast, our philis- philosophical yeah. episode, our futurist <laughs> episode. And speaking right. of which, uh, I think a lot of people want to get some some updates on the holodeck as well. Oh yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And light fields and things. So, okay, uh, real quick before we go into that, because uh, uh, speaking of light fields, would uh, meshlets? So when we have talked previously about like what it takes in order to run one of these holographic displays and stuff, you know, it's 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 been it's been a lot in order to run these displays. Would meshlets or anything like that help these at all or is it, you know, 100 percent like, no, these screens need this much processing power? I think I think you're gonna unavoidably. I mean, let me put it this way: just to display the screen right mm-hmm. now takes 16 or 15 A6000s just to turn the thing on, <laughs> put a pixel on on there because it's spinning out a zillion rays. It's like basically mm-hmm. a, a you know 40 inch a 40 inch panel would be 10 gigapixels, right? 10 mm-hmm. gigapixels. That's a lot. So it's like you know, it is. I think something like 100K by 100K. Now, certainly, if you're if you're talking about an offline render and you're just literally play blasting 100K by 100K image file, which is possible, right, to a holographic display panel. And that's kind of what, you know, order one is just do that. Because if you want to just basically create a, a movie or something and just have it rendered, why do left and right? Why do uh, color plus depth render it holographically for, a, you know, 40 inch panel? And at the very least, it'll be like looking out of a window. And how, whatever we, whatever gets that process to be faster, great. Brigade is something we've been testing from the beginning, where we start with something where we're trying to get this thing to run in real time. And the very first test that we did with early, early Brigade on a 2080 Ti, we were able to run a six inch panel at 15 frames a second. Um, so it's, it, it's certainly, you know, as long as we can run in real time, there's enough GPUs and, and Brigade would probably work in the, in the same way um, as, as we're gonna have it and ending up in Octane, where you can split it across multiple GPUs by area, right? That makes more sense with something like Brigade Kernel. Then, it, then it's a question of yes, feeding data in quickly is important, um, and there's several options. I mean, it's not no different than when you have a, you know, scene that you want to, you know, render for for viewing or, or editing locally. I mean, a holographic panel is just a crazy high density display. Just think of it that way. There's there's you know 20 million HDMI ports that connect to something. Imagine it's just one and it plugs into your computer or your, your you can sort of screen share to that. So what are the options? The options are that you basically send a scene down an Orbex that can then be rendered live on that thing so you can interact with it. 
or to be rendered on the cloud, in which case you're streaming, you're streaming 100K of data down. And so I think they, they probably, if you're at that point where you've got, you know, and, and we're, we're now in the world where 10 gigabits down is not the craziest thing. We're gonna get to 40 and other things. That's about as fast as memory transfer on, on a PC. It's not as fast yeah. as an SSD to a GPU. But I think that where things are heading is we will certainly have the render network be available for rendering offline files that you can then, again, play video back, holographic video on there. If you're talking about holographic room though, and we're not there yet, then you'd have to have way more data. But all of that would still have to come down. If you're talking about rendering it live, the way that would work and the way it will probably work eventually is there's no reason why you couldn't render the, the, the holographic output slowly on that panel, right? In the sense, and that's where the brigade, you know, switch comes in, because the data render it probably could be sent down as a scene file, and then you'd have have everything. That's kind of how we're trying to think about even with the Roddenberry project. We're trying to recreate episodes of Star Trek now with characters and sets and virtual production. But all of that's fully saved as a volumetric Orbex file, including the actors, even if they're performing, <coughs> we have the scans of them, we rectify all that. That's what you would need to be able to navigate in a holodeck for anything that, that is not just running live and unreal, which even then, if you want octane quality, is still a layer on top of that. So the scene files being sent down probably makes sense. And I think that, that you, just like you know now, you have pre-rendered and you have real-time rendered and you have things that are in between, you'll have that same sort of issue. But the problem with the whole display panels is 15 GPUs just to display an image is what you're at now. We can use the 16 GPUs to also run Brigade and to run things like that, and we've tried that. So you can get real-time stuff on there, um, you know, and, and it's it's really a question of probably the 16 GPUs being just minimum just to display the thing is helpful for having Brigade on there, but even, you know, the work ahead before this becomes something that prosumers or consumers need is you want to have the, the panels have just one GPU in there not 16, and that will happen. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. you just think about the doubling of GPUs every generation, roughly speaking, um, and not all those doublings need to be in the compute side. They just need to be like, just have more larger texture sizes, more outputs. You'll get to one GPU in a few years instead of 15. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's essentially four years, maybe we'll, we'll be there five years, something like that. And, and that's before we come up with more sophisticated, interesting options, right, which could do, it, for example, the AI neural rendering could be volumetrically rendered across those those things. But you're just spitting out a ton of rays. And everything that's not quite that, where you have like an AK display with a lenticular filter, I mean, those things aren't really holographic and they're not going to fool yeah. your eye and they're not going to be right. real. And the point of the holodeck is it looks real, it feels real, it's indistinguishable from the light that's coming yeah. into your eyeballs from reality. And more importantly, you don't need to wear glasses. So yeah, this is this is important for us. And we're, we're, we've been in this now with Lights Lab, I think for five or six years since they started on this. I mean, they've, they've gotten, you know, massive funding from, um, you know, from, from a bunch of, you know, big name you know, partners like Samsung. And, and this thing is meant to be licensed, right? To all display manufacturers eventually. Mm -hmm. So it will show up in TVs and, whatever, you know, windows, uh, you know, even glasses potentially, because it would still be useful to have a light field display there. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the, the initial use case for this is going to be concerts, museums, and and probably physical art. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. that's talking to people, he wants one, you know, like, I want to have my, my yeah. And, and then you can have an NFT that's on a holographic display that looks like a physical object, but that can mm -hmm. be changed by the artist. And that's what Human One was meant to do. So Mm -hmm. I think that that we're we're just in the early days when it's like people are like, what is? Why do we want HD? Why do we want 4K? Why do we want HDR? Um, it, it's 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 going to be it's it's something that I think will absolutely solve at least a couple of problems that have failed before, which is glasses-free uh, 3D TV didn't work, mm -hmm. even though it was lightweight, and certainly a lot of applications that require glasses in AR and VR and mixed reality, including you know meetings, teleconferencing. I mean, there's no doubt that if you can do a holographic two-way, three-way equivalent of a Zoom meeting, that's going to be yeah. really important. So that's where, like, 100%, it, and the world that we live in now, like, because of, of, of the last few years, 
it's just and people are working from home. That's a new normal for a lot of mm-hmm. people. So having having this capability, I think, is important. Not everything should go through a pair of glasses, even if yeah. there are companies that I, I trust that I think will do a decent job of that. I think it's just one modality. It's not for everything. Hi, my name is Sashia Dumont. I'm a writer, actor, and filmmaker. Hi, my name is Paul Robinson. I'm a director, DP, and filmmaker. We are the creators and hosts of the Go Gorilla Filmcast, an online source for all things indie film. We are a husband and wife film team and co-owners of Send3 Productions, and we started this podcast for filmmakers like ourselves who were producing on micro-budgets with Skeleton Crews. Go Gorilla is a weekly podcast that features various talents in TV, film, and web series productions. We've interviewed filmmaker powerhouses like Kestrin Pantera, Richard Raymond, Alex Ferrari, Cassandra Ebner, and Ryan Connolly. Amazing actors like Hannah Ward, Lou Taylor Pucci, Chris Wataski, and Eileen Gruba. Groundbreaking cinematographers like Jody Lee Lipes, and Jessica Lee Gagne, and many more. We also offer weekly reviews of our favorite films and shows, which vary from low-budget first-time filmmakers to A-listers and everyone in between. Go Gorilla is proud to announce that we have officially joined the MoGraph Podcast Network. So if you love filmmaking as much as we do, tune in every Sunday for a new episode of the Go Gorilla Filmcast. Your, your source, source for, for all things indie film. film. Now available on the MoGraph Podcast Network. We, yeah. uh, we've met up for some meetings in person recently and just, you know, with COVID and everything going on, it's just been so refreshing Despite having Zoom and Discord and all those other things, it's just a different feeling in person. And it would be so great to just turn on your little projector somewhere in your house and other people can just show up. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, do you you think, do you really, do you think it's going to take like quantum computing in order to get to that level, though? No. You you think we're going to do it with what we currently have? or? Yeah, I think I think when you look at like I think somebody just cracked the one nanometer problem, which is you know we're, I think we're at five nanometers now. So, I mean we we have we have at least um, you know we're going to have a lot more doublings of speed. And I think by the time that you're when I was describing when you have one GPU uh, per per you know eighteen inch panel handling everything, including real time rendering, at least like you know because if you get to thirty, you can basically do interpolation and do get to one twenty or something like that. You know, then then you're in a pretty good place. I mean, the, these hologram panels are going to be like the Samsung video wall. You just have, what you don't buy a single size necessarily. You buy as many as you need, and for the area you want to cover, right? Eventually, they'll be bi-directional, so they'll record from the panels as well as display. It'll be both. Um, they'll have mm-hmm. some sort of haptics for basic touch. You can push and pull on things. You'll, you know, anything else will work. Hand tracking, obviously, even for um, <laughs> for AR is a thing. <laughs> but no, I don't think you need quantum computing for that. I think quantum computing might be might be really interesting when you're trying to simulate the universe and and go a level beyond what we're doing with rendering. And certainly, it's possible. I mean, if you if you think about quantum computers, just basically being a way to sort of run a lot of possibilities and get an answer back faster than brute force, then there's there's options there. I mean, I think that even for things like rendering, um, but but really like 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 almost like 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 impossibly hard renders, you know, it, it could be there. But I mean, we're we're just far from even quantum computing being practical <clears throat> yeah. in terms of <clears throat> competing with um, you know, with classical computing. But there's no doubt that there's going to be. I mean, we may just find out that if you wanted to simulate the universe, um, you know, a Turing complete machine is not quite the way to do it. Or, you know, what we've thought of as, as, as computing for the last, you know, 70 years 
quantum computing might be a more interesting way of, of simulating quantum effects, for example, where the quantum world is not necessarily, um, you know, decidable. And all we know is that maybe the user universe that feels physical is just a recording of information of a deeper reality. And, and so if we want to play in that world and play with the possibilities of that um, and crack passwords faster, you know, I was going to say, uh, um, like, encryption is yeah. like out the window. If oh, that yeah, happens. You, you, for sure. So encryption is probably going to be the very first thing that quantum computing will probably be practically applied to because, and frankly, you need now, as, as many are, you, you can also use quantum um, entanglement to essentially at least make sure if you're sending data that it's, it, no one's listening in. So right. those kinds of, you know, the problem with, with that kind of approach is that if on the device, there's still a gap where if somebody puts a virus on the device that's sending the quantum entanglement information, uh, you can still find out what it is, just like, you know, anything, it's not, it's not a, you know, it's going to be hard to foolproof everything, but it, it, it is something where it's dangerous because if you think about all the things that have been sent ever in encrypted form, over the internet, quantum computer in the future might be able to track all of that. Yeah. So, you know, that's yeah. that's a tricky situation. Um, I've been watching sure. some stuff on that, and, and some people are are discussing that they don't even understand how half of it works. Like, in, <laughs> in, in essence, it's it's almost like it's channeling power from uh, parallel universes in order to work or something. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah. I don't even understand. I don't mm -hmm. get it. I don't get it. But it sure is interesting. I it is. Well, I think the, the, the parallel universe approach is interesting because when you look at the quantum world, it is generally speaking a probability curve. And the crazy things that can happen with that is if there's a chance that something happens and you don't really observe it or you don't lock and observing doesn't mean your eyeballs, it means that it gets recorded right. you know, in our in our information. Right? Information is the core of everything. It's like information is the one bit is like a quarter of a black hole's area, you know, tiniest black hole surface area. There's like a limit to how much information can be processed and stored in the physical universe. It's possible that when our sensors get you know better, we can see the change in mass on a hard drive when you store more data that's possibly likely to happen so what we're kind of where quantum computing fits in quantum theory in general is, is fascinating is that indeterminate state of possibilities is something that that includes possibly an overlap of all these different you know elements and what we sort of see at a macro level where there's there's sort of this this one thing it doesn't necessarily apply but information theory is all about that the fact very fact that you that clutch um Shannon, you know, he created the idea of, of compression of what a bit is. It's just flipping a coin. I mean, Shannon entropy is probably a deeper reality than 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 energy and mass and all the stuff that, that we see in the physical world. So from an information perspective, this all makes a ton of sense. And information is interesting because we can imagine almost anything. And that exists somewhere. I mean, like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony exists before Beethoven was alive. He just pulled it out of the ether, so to speak. And the same thing with an infinite monkeys typing Shakespeare. Shakespeare existed in theory right. in the universe where that could happen. So quantum computing is a lot like that. It can sort of pull into these possibilities that could exist and that may exist and, and give you back something that's an interesting or meaningful result if we apply it right. But I think the universe itself is like that. I mean, that's why if we're running in a simulation, it's not like a video game. It's much more like an information state system that, that collapses in ways we don't fully understand. And I mm -hmm. think that's why it's so interesting and fascinating. But there's a lot of like, People throw up their hands with quantum, quantum theory in general because it's like we don't fully understand entanglement in this, in this or that way. We're we're still figuring it out, and we of course we don't understand how the universe works. There's no theory of everything. We're still figuring out what dark right. energy, dark matter is. So we're not at a point where we know even know what it would take to simulate the universe or what what's beyond even that frontier. Um, but again, quantum computing is a fascinating area, and we'll probably start to answer a lot of those questions as as people really work hard to, to make that happen and to see what, what what we can sort of crack from that both on the computing side and also philosophically and, and even on a practical level. I hope AI helps us figure that out, you know, and, and if anybody listening has not uh, read up on the double slit experiment, <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's, it's mind blowing. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, 
And you know, you know, the extension of that is when you basically hold the results for a while, basically, if you open up the, you know, the envelope in the future, some one of the results is trapped in a mirror from the double cell experiment is then changed in the past. So it's, <laughs> it's one of the things where it's not just for space, it's for time as well. And, you know, the idea is that, you know, we, yeah, you, you have essentially based on how the world is observed, how we how information is, is generated in a fixed way that is then shared information with everything else that is looking at it. You know, you, you start to see a chain of, of things. I don't know whether, you know, infinite universe collapse into one is probably more sophisticated than that. But yeah, the, the, the double slit experiment, where depending on how it's observed, you get a wave pattern or you get a, a single, you know, photon or a stream, it, it goes through time. And it's, that's the craziest part of it is that you, you have this thing where you do something in the future, it'll change something in the past because that entanglement, that probability, mm-hmm. unless it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, informationally exposed to the air, so to speak, like the Schrodinger cat thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, goes, it, 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 it goes backwards in time too, which is wild. So yeah, reality yeah. and time and space as we know it is certainly more squishy and interesting than, than I think even the theory of relativity sort of implies um, at face value. That cat's got to be dead by now, though. I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to also um, ask you, because we're talking about all this future stuff, about like where you think the metaverse is going. It's mm. a great question. I think, I think that my sort of my chagrin, the metaverse now is, is, has been a, is a mainstream word, but I don't think it, yeah. it means a lot of things because you have fridge, fridges with metaverses in there. And I'm like, what? no, <laughs> you know, so, so going back to a step where, I mean, even, and even NFTs, I, I feel weird talking about using that term because I, I want to talk about digital art, which is an idea that I had long I hate the term NFT. Thinking, it needs right. to be rebranded. I've said right. that a million like, times. Yeah. <laughs> you create an art piece of art and you sell it, or people can do things with it, great. The metaverse is like that too. I mean, the metaverse ultimately is a spatial you know, reality that you can, you don't have to live in it, but you, you, know, you can actually experience it. I mean, that's VR was kind of the very first steps to that. But it, at a simplest level, like let's just imagine that instead of a web browser, you have a, a universe browser, a, a spatial temporal browser, and everything that you can experience in a 2D screen is, is sort of spatially there. And whether that's in VR or holographic display or in your mind, it's kind of like, the, let's imagine the internet just organized in a spatial way that, that allows you to not just look at images I and mean, NFTs, right? They're mostly, and maybe you get a JLTF in there, but they're mostly 2D or, or, or documents or things like that, just like the web. What needs to happen is 3D needs to become this, the baseline of everything. And therefore, you know, when you don't have to worry about what a 2D thing is, you know, when you essentially have everything sort of organized spatially and temporally like the physical world, and that becomes a new internet, that's mostly what the metaverse is at a foundational level. You need a lot of computing, you need a lot of things. Now, what is the metaverse used for? You can play games in it, you probably can watch movies in it, you can create shared experiences in it, you can certainly build anything in there that, that, that your avatars or that even the physical world can sort of be overlaid in. And that's not that different than having, you know, Google Maps overlay 2D things or, you know, on, you know, on, on Google Earth uh, or 3D objects even. But it's like that, that kind of spatial web is, is where things begin. As far as artists are concerned, as far as the metaverse that I'm kind of in, interested in, I think the idea of making content, and this is where virtual production is interesting, if you can start recording things and making artwork and even have AI tools like Midjourney work in 3D, and everything is 3D. You have one piece of it, which is at least the data, the assets and everything are now spatial and they're not limited to a 2D boxed window. So if you want to think about how the movies in the metaverse might work, you may you may just, and this is what we're doing with the Ronaby Archive. Like we started like, well, let's build the real thing. Let's build the enterprise down to the toilets flush, the things are there. The provenance is so deep that like every, all of the notes, everything there, all the different versions and every timeline's there. So if you want the story of Star Trek told, you can render that to a you know, four by three asset ratio for the original series. Um, <laughs> 
and we're doing that. And we have actors, we, we're, you know, we're building the costumes, scanning them. I mean, it's going to be like a recreation. And then we can also tell stories that, like from the strips that weren't ever filmed and, and all that's there. So from a metaverse perspective, you have everything you had in the old medium, which is you can watch seeing 2D, but you now have the equivalent of, of like, I don't know, the internet or Wikipedia, you can go in and you can look at things from different angles. You can experience those things. And that, it, to me, is already fascinating because if you wanted to tell stories and even share those assets or those things, it's not just about sharing the 3D models. It's like, what? how do you combine, like behind me, I have these crossover things with the painting that Alex Ross did of Star Wars, Star Trek. How would you create that in the metaverse and not just have it be a mashup or, or Fortnite, where just everyone's just moving around doing things? Like, there's still things where the, the idea that we have with this, this M token is that it's starting with people and starting with Gene Roddenberry and starting with Alex. It's not just to store their art, but in the case of Alex, in the case of, of Gene, you know, like there's there's an actual storyline. There are things that there are rules within those universes that make sense. So I think being able to play in that world or experience stories in that world or make your own stories with the permission from others and, and riff on that is fascinating. That to me is yeah. is the metaverse in a nutshell. And it also forces you to think about what is the enterprise? It is is it the one version of it? Is it the you know, in this movie, or, the, or is it the ship of Theseus, where, you know, and I think in the actual storyline, it is that. I mean, they take all the pieces of the Enterprise apart from the TV show, and they add new ones, and it's it's the same ship, you know, because it's been replaced piece by piece in the movie, but it's a completely different model, and it looks different. But the essence of it, this, the essence of that is, is, is what the metaverse version of the Enterprise is, plus all the stories that are told around that. How that web works is why... I want to start, you know, having art connect to that. And I feel that's fundamental. By the way, if you want to have an AI trained on telling Star Trek stories and re-rendering Star Trek stories, you'll have the database for that. Ooh. I mean, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's exactly, so exactly. Yeah, I yeah. like that so, idea. Yeah, I, I want to take a, um, uh, a, an AI and feed him only scripts from The Simpsons from season <laughs> one through ten, but none of the other ones, so that right. I can get yeah. some good classic episodes. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that that's something that, that GPT like things will be able to do really well. But I think that what, what they what they're missing and this is maybe where you combine these things together is you tell you want to tell a Star Trek story like somebody wants to make a movie. It could be JJ Abrams, could be me, could be uh, the ghost of Gene Roddenberry from all the things he's written. Or it could be, uh, you know, on fanfiction.net, there's, you know, 100,000 stories in every milieu. Mm-hmm. And those, some of them are beautiful stories. Like, they're really well done. And, and frankly, a lot of fans submitted scripts and they became Star Trek writers. So my, my view, and I think Rod, you know, the Roddenberry stage shares this as well, is that at some point, and, and CBS allows this, right? You can make 15 minutes of your own Star Trek thing. Imagine if you gave people the tools to really make that work and give them, like, here's a parallel universe where your story takes place. Just like JJ's, you know, movies yeah. take place in, mm-hmm. you know, a different Earth. And yeah, there's a crossover and Spock does this and that. But, you know, most of Roddenberry Star Trek stories, including his novelization of the picture, it's slightly different than what's in the movie. Like, you know, Kirk has a wife. It's not in the film. It's in Roddenberry's novelization of the movie. Things like that already mean that the story of Star Trek, even from the creator's perspective, you know, there's there's a universe where Han shot first and Greta shot first, right? I mean, these kinds of things are meta, but they exist. And and the idea of, of sort of, you know, doing like quantum you know, sort of collapse with, you know, wave function collapse. It's like you look at one version of the story, maybe that's what is canonical from the studio's perspective or the IP's holder's perspective. But to be honest, we're living in a world where there's three, I'm not spoiling anything, there's three Spider Man in one movie and you've got different, you know, <laughs> oh. movie studios. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. I, I, I know, but I could be I could be speaking about in Spider Verse where there's literally <laughs> every Spider Man, right? So my point yeah. is, you're in a world where there's 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 like you know, yeah. I I uh, I I'm so sorry if I if I no, I you're spoilers, fine. But, no, no, but but, but <laughs> it's my fault for not seeing it. I was gonna say, I knew. yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it's mm. but but that meta narrative. Matthew Ball, who writes about the metaverse a lot, 
why I love, and you're right about us too. He's, he's an expert on the metaverse. I think he clued in on this really early, which is it's the narrative co- context that we're now in, where it's like you have the flash movie, where it's like Michael Keaton's coming back, and all these things, everything that ever happened exists. There's an omniverse of these things. That's why Nvidia calls this stuff omniverse. That's why Fortnite takes place in the omniverse. All of that is is the new normal for sci-fi, for genre, for fiction, and it gives us, and, and just on this face value, it's crazy because everything could be it could be real, but organizing these things in this way and telling stories and making that feel meaningful to humans and, and fun, I think is is one of the things we hope to do even with these archive projects and, and working with others. And I feel like that's an important part of metafiction. Um, We'll see. There's there's room for everything, but that is something that yeah. up, up until I think this moment in time, even on a cinematic scale, it's in Marvel Cinematic Universe changed movie making, and now we're looking at, 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 at studios working together to combine properties. I mean, there's no an organizational way of approaching that in the metaverse. I think would be very in, important, and that's what Wikipedia does for information, right? And it's not perfect, but it, it, you can find tons of stuff in a well organized way, and then you have wikis like Memory Alpha, which are done by Star Trek fans with fifty thousand articles. And it's still in the same sort of core database. You can reference ideas and assets textually or through links. But imagine if that were a tool that you could use to create art or tell stories or experience stories or or, or explore even history, right? I mean, they're all all these things. Like, we're, we're not just doing the Star Trek episodes. The director that filmed The Cage, the first pilot, interviewed part of that stuff, his his input. He also directed the you know, Batman Adam West pilot. Like, that's his, in his entry in, in our system, right? You could explore these worlds, you know, both in-universe, out-of-universe, Super important. It's really for authenticity. Did I use the idea to do this or that? I mean, the history of how work is created and how IP is generated is very important, even for deep fakes, right? Which is a thing that, that we want to think about, like having a sort of standard way of, of approaching how this was recorded, how it was created and who was involved, I think will you know really play a big part in solving some of those problems. And um, by the way, I guess you mentioned that uh, the Star Trek Motion Picture Director's Edition has something Octane related in Are they coming out with a new version? I'm- it's out. Um, it came out on, on first contact day, which I think oh. was April fourth. There okay. are so I, I I'm not yet a, because I think it's still playing in theaters. Believe it or not, you can actually go see it in theaters. Um, it's limited re- release. Um, yes, I, as it turns out, um, I found out um, because the, the people that worked on it also are working with me on the Roddenberry archive that there are some there are three shots at least that are done <laughs> in Octane, and I, I was like, and I and I didn't know going into the movie. I was invited to the premiere of it. I I knew exactly which shots they were, and they're. Huh. Yeah, beautiful shots of the Enterprise. Beautiful, like, like I, I mean, I love that movie, and I love, you know, the practical Kubrick-like effects. You know, Douglas Trumbull who did 2001 and the Star Trek motion picture, and you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it, it fits that world perfectly, and it's a beautiful way of, of using Octane. There's more to that story, by the way, of how how our tool sets were used in that film. That I think, you know, probably. I think in a couple of months, once it's out of the theaters, I'll be able to share all the behind the scenes or even nice. hopefully Paramount will be able to do that. But yeah, it was amazing. That movie is a classic and it was it had to look like the practical model. And so given, but one thing I did learn is that the model that was used, because it's not the same as what's in the Roddenberry archive, because we've been rebuilding all these things, like the model that's in the Roddenberry archive is, is, is that plus a million times more, because that's an eight foot model that Jeff Bezos has as an office, uh, has in his office because he bought it from auction. We have that version in the Roddenberry archive created by the people that also created it for this. But then we have the full thousand foot version with everything there. And I'm like, wow, like imagine if for very similar to you're, you're telling another structured story or even retelling the stories with those pieces there like you're looking at mm-hmm. something that feels real that's why practical effects come in and mm-hmm. cg is always like a shortcut because you don't want to build it physically and, and you know whatever but maybe there's a medium where where those things converge but yeah the star trek movie being done 
uh, in Octane. And there's also, by the way, movies that are studio movies that are done in render on the decentralized nodes on people's machines. Um, I did not expect that. I always thought you'd have to go. That's why we have the Amazon and, and Azure nodes and Google nodes there, so that you can do your your Marvel movies on there. I'm not saying this was a Marvel movie, but it was it was a you know it's it's a movie that that is you know, recently you know was done on on on, on people's average people's machines um, because render was faster and cheaper and available, and it was a cost you know decision. And that's great. That's what the system's you know there for. Uh, but there's so much more that we want to. You know, sort of add to that with real time and with all the all the artist tools, you know, for provenance. I'm not going to call it NFTs, but you know, <laughs> the, the concept behind NFTs in the metaverse, all those pieces are part of where I think render needs to go. And and we have, by the way, just generating AI nerf is a huge render job. So just having that on the, on network is going to change people's lives because you mm-hmm. don't need to go and and wait for that. It's it's more it's in some some ways it's even more intense than um you know than actually rendering things. It's it's a much more computationally intensive process. Happily, it maps to GPUs really well. So, yeah. Well, what do you think about these new series? Now, I, I have a bone to pick with Picard, but what do, what do you <laughs> think about um, Strange New Worlds? So, <laughs> I, I, I am biased in that, you know, my best friend, Rod Reinenberg, who is, you know, the chief of my project, the Reinenberg Archive, is all mm-hmm. for him. Um, you know, he's a producer on all the shows. Now, you know, he hasn't put in these things like he was, I think, hopefully it's safe to say that he was the one that insisted that Rebecca remain had dark hair because his mother played number one in the pilot and also played Nurse Chapel, who's played ben, by now another actress. So things like that are, are, are sort of important. I mean, I would say Strange Worlds is my favorite out of all the new shows, even more I so agree. than Picard. It is so good. Um, we worked, by the way, on, on, on for the first time outside of our normal stuff, we worked with CBS on one of the shows, not not, some, not something that's out there yet and is separate from the, the movie. This is Otoy actually doing some, some production work. So that will be out, and I can't wait to talk about that. Ooh. But I think that from a, a story perspective, I'd say Strange New Worlds, I mean, there's there's a lot of issues that immediately people realized when we put out our stuff. We did the cage. It looks exactly like it did in 1964. We got the same costumes. Nothing's different. And, and Stranger Worlds takes place five years after that, but you're already seeing, is this really the same ship? It's like a little bit larger. Um, I mean, are, you know, people have been recast. There are two people playing Savic, right? You know, in between structure three and four, you know, it just happens. But I think that, that what's more interesting is, are they staying true to the to the story beats that were there? Even if you consider structure to just be like Shakespeare, it's written word, right? The story of Star Trek is what matters. The visual renderings of it could be animated like Lower Decks or the animated series where you can flip to more yeah. realistic and maybe how you interpret the ship, it looks a little bit longer. I mean, these are all things where in our version of the Runway Archive, I mean, there's 17 versions of, of the Enterprise model and there are different timelines that Gene wrote or didn't write or, or, or there. And, and so from that perspective, this fits in, in that context. The question is, are you sure that this is exactly what was shown in the 1960s TV show? But even Roddenberry, in the opening of the Star Trek novel, the one he wrote, he's like, Kirk, he says, Kirk is, is, is practicing saying, everything you're reading in this book is the only truth. And I don't like how you know, I was portrayed and my adventures, they were exaggerated, implying that maybe the Star Trek TV show wasn't exactly what was what was happening, but close. So even Roddenberry was like embarrassed by the animated series, the original series, and wanted <laughs> to have those look better. And ultimately it was decided, no, those things are, they happen the way they, they look, that you see that on, on Star Trek um, The Next Generation, Picard and Scotty go into the original Enterprise, all the way to, you know, Archer in, 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 the, in the last series. So it's really only with Discovery and later that there's this implication that maybe things don't look the way they used to. But, you know, you have a million fans who are like, oh, well, this happened because the time timeline was changed when the right. went back in first contact, obviously. So yeah. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe, I mean, that, that works. So I think that, that, but in terms of the quality of the show, I do love Strange New Worlds. It's a really great Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I love Ethan Peck as Spock. And, um, and I think Anson Mount's great as, as, as Pike. I mean, I, I feel like they're, yeah. they're doing good stuff. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I love it. 
the womanizer aspect is so Kirk like, you know, and like the, um, the I, I just feel like they're really grabbing the essence of the original. And I wasn't a big original fan. I'm a next generation fan, you know, mm, but yeah. like the essence is just there. It is so good. Yeah. And uh, same applies. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you've watched the Orville, but the essence of next generation <laughs> and the Orville yeah. And uh, like it's like they have moved away from the comedy. Like it's becoming like a yeah. a, a real show. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, it's. Really I mean, a real, real sci-fi show. Right. And mm -hmm. and you're, you're right. Tons of people. So Rod loves the Orville. Like Rod and Barry Mission Live podcast, which covers all the Star Trek shows, does recaps of all the episodes, interviews, does the Orville. Right. Doug Drexler, who who uh, works with us on the Reinberg, who's created so much of the visual history of Star Trek the last thirty years, works in the Orville. Loves the Orville. I mean, the Orville is like this. It, it's this. It's a cousin of Star Trek, and I think right. everybody involved. Star Trek loves it for that reason, and Seth MacFarlane is brilliant. I mean, that that he loves Star Trek, and yeah. I've met him a bunch of times for the stuff we're doing with Otoy. But this was like, I mean, I think he wanted to do Star Trek, and in the end, probably mm -hmm. smartly so, just did his thing and created something beautiful yeah. that works in its own right. And I, I think it's like, that's it's like Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest yeah. isn't an official Star Trek right. movie, but it's it it could be. Yeah. But Julie and I have yeah. been watching uh, Strange New Worlds and Orville simultaneously back and forth, and we're almost <laughs> starting to confuse some of the plot lines. And you mm. know, it's like, wait, was that was that on that show or was that on the other show? I can't remember. Which universe is that? So. That's why each university needs to be documented, so you know <laughs> right. which, which goes what goes where, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I'd love to touch on render yes. a bit. Yes, if that's we what can. I was say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Any new because there was there mm -hmm. was an announcement on Twitter on the the render Twitter about the RNP zero zero one Burnin Mint equilibrium. I'm not. I I, I don't understand this stuff enough. To I talk am. About it. I problem. am dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I need I need you to dumb it down for me and kind of give me some updates as far as what what's going on. Yeah, no, I mean, I speak to, like, there's big stuff happening, and, and there is. And, and what you're discussing is basically a request for proposals. So before we get into what that is, and that is, you know, people are asking, what's the new token economic model for render? Because mm -hmm. what I imagined in 2017 was very simple, and it was very much based on, like, you know, we're taking Amazon, we're replacing it with a token, and, and eventually our artist type people will be entangled in that. We've had, since those five years, we've had partners like, you know, Multicoin, that was publicly announced, they they basically invested in render and there have helped tokens like helium for example which is basically utility token for wi-fi and other things and they're like you guys need a, a better model like you know there are people that are not for artists not for no but people in the middle what if you're you know what if you're you know there's so much there's so many more opportunities that are there and they and, and i agree i think that you know the, the world of, of how the blockchain and, and even tokens work is, is radically different than it was at the beginning so we want to have a new model but the thing is that's not you know for the tokens and, and that would provide people for example liquidity providers which is what this proposal from multiclin by the way and others can sort of add or, or change that over the coming weeks you know it provides a way for you to actually use render in this in this other form the big change though for us is not otoy running render and doing this is that we have to have this thing be a decentralized entity and right you know, we've had sub subsidiaries that handle render in, within a toy. So the, the biggest news of all, which is I think lost on a lot of people, is that we are starting a foundation. Um, it's, a, it's officially, I mean, if it wasn't news before it is now, that foundation is going to be really at arm's length from everything we're doing. We're going to make sure it's populated by people that know what they're doing, even some some people we've worked with. But ultimately, it's designed to, to have ownership over the render network, not have us do it. Because you know, we're a U.S. company, and, and there's only so many things you can do in that space. And that's why decentralization mm. is so powerful and interesting. So with that that foundation, which I think we're you know we're looking at setting that up for July. Uh, again, I'm sort of saying in the Telegram, like you have to be 
careful with dates. There's a million different things. And it, a lot of it is just from a governor's perspective, even just from how you operate legally. Like you just can't do the things that, that people are, are sort of asking of, of, of the network from an entity or corporation running these things. So the, the, the other thing about the foundation is it really does come closer to a community system where you'll have right. the equivalent of DAOs where people can vote on things. So starting with, with the economic model, like, I, mean, I think multi-point proposal is really good. And I think there's other people that immediately like, I think this could be better and I'm going to propose something. So there's already a system in place now where those things to be voted on. So it's not that we're going with the multi model. It's just that that's one of the approaches. It's certainly well thought out. I'm, I think it's pretty good. And ultimately, the process with the foundation getting up and then voting on these things will allow us to then, you know, pick, pick this model and start implementing it. But not us, Otoy or me, Jules, but the, the foundation, which while we may have, you know, a lot of, of influence and Otoy will probably work with the foundation on a lot of things to provide the things it's providing. That's a future where, you know, there's an open system and it also is, is where things are a lot more transparent. There's like a lot of the, you know, the, the concerns around what are you doing with, with this and that of the system? Like it, it, this, this is something that, that can be fulfilled in terms of the entrance describing all these even retroactively by a foundation. So those are huge things. That's why it took six months to even figure out all those pieces and get all these things ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're now there. So I think that the summer will be really exciting for render and I'm, I think in tandem to that, you know, we have many other important pieces that are sort of coming together, including all the stuff I was describing with, you know, the NFT slash metaverse pieces, the stuff we're doing with Solana, which mm-hmm. is you know, fundamental to that. We have some, I think we'll have some pretty cool surprise, surprises in terms of how those will work that people might not see coming. Although I think I've described maybe 80% of some of those pieces on this on this, uh, this call. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but there's still more. And I, and I also think that, that you know, there, there's a lot of volatility in the crypto space. There just is. Like, there's no, this, you know, yeah, we, I mean, we try, we try, <laughs> for the artist and node operator perspective, although we haven't done everything perfectly on, on those fronts. It's meant to sort of, you know, smooth that out. And I think that for the rest of that to work in a way that where everybody else in the crypto space kind of wants to apply those same principles to render, the foundation is the, is the way to go. And I'm also just happy that like we have partners that, that can advise us on this. I mean, that's where the six months mm-hmm. kind of has been. How do we do this right? How do we get the right advice? I mean, you, you, it's really we're dealing with things where it's just not well understood or well known or even well, you know, laid out and in, in, you know across different jurisdictions or states or, and so it has to be done carefully and thoughtfully in a sense that i want the system to grow and i want it to be a fundamental part of the metaverse like computing in the metaverse art in the metaverse these are mm-hmm. things that renders should be able to do and it shouldn't be one company or or me or whatever deciding these things i mean that's where you that's where the power of, of, of an ethereum for example and other um properly managed um you know chains and 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 projects i mean there's a lot of value to that and i think that we need to get to something like the open web mozilla is still my inspiration brendan and i going and creating uh, javascript and then mozilla and then and then basic attention token and even thinking about the browser as a is an important fundamental piece even in 3d for the metaverse and all these elements um you know we need we need something that to go there, and I'm, I've been trying for years, even with an Otoy, to do things like ITMF and open standards, and and you know contributed things. So, render is ultimately maybe the bigger fulfillment of all these things. Like there will be sort of this 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 organizational entity um, that we contribute as much as we've always been doing to render, but also have it be essentially something that the community and the larger ecosystem can you know have ownership and and vote on to all these things. And I think that's, I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons why. Um, I think we went down this path is that, you know, that the whole blockchain space and the decentralization aspect of it is is um, is incredibly powerful. And we're seeing that the fact that render exists even to this point where we have a, probably a million GPUs on the wait list. Um, you know, at some point, even mm-hmm. I think the guys in Midjourney are going to run out of GPUs on whatever projects they have. Right. And right. here we got a million. So I see scale as AI and no matter what you're doing compute is going to be fundamentally important. And I think we've got a really good you know, system for that and a great set of tools and partnerships around artists that want to leverage that.
I and, see the future. I see the future of render. And, you know, I, I'm on the, the render subreddit and stuff like that. And yeah. anytime someone asks something, you know, I, I feel like because we've spoken so much, I have a really good understanding of, like, the future of where render is going. And I think people will only see, only kind of see it as, oh, well, you know, you render frames, you get paid back. <laughs> but it's like, there's so much more to that, you know. Yeah having a decentralized gpu and you know i i i don't know if y'all have currently or are in the process of building an sdk for people to be able to use externally you know not just for rendering frames but for doing <laughs> ai work and yeah. doing all sorts of things yeah. you know and with that the yeah. render network's going to have to grow exponentially which means there's going to need to be more node operators there's going to be you know more of everything yeah, I agree, and it's true. You're right. It's not just rendering in and out. I mean, there's there's a lot of. I mean, the AI stuff alone, and I'm, I'm glad that we're to the point where this this very you know conversation we're all having is post mid journey, right? Coming out, and there's yeah. a, I, I probably I'm assuming most of our Octane users also are aware of mid journey, and that's great. Mm -hmm. um, so you can start to see that even the cons, and, and you know, it costs money, right? To use, I mean, you know, there's I think they say four dollars per GPU hour. My point is that the scale of how art is going to be created, even if AI is at the middle of it, is is it's not a soft problem. But there's so much more beyond that as well. And I think that the the concept of having something that allows you to organize things. I mean, if we didn't have the web, you would never have gotten to the Amazons, the Googles, even Apple putting Safari right into the iPhone was why the, the iPhone was the iPhone. Not to mention social networks like Facebook and Twitter. I mean, the web created those things. I mean, there may be this this sort of aggressive sort of retraction into apps and verticals and isolations, and and there's. This didn't need to happen. You know, you could have had Mozilla work on the Firefox Phone OS, which, which gives you permissions to all these things. And, and you know, there could have been WebGPU, for example, which it's still kind of a thing that gives you almost everything CUDA or Vulkan could have. I want to see that happen. So for us, you know, these things start from one company sometimes putting something out there and making it a standard or a spec and others contributing or changing it or adopting it. And we have to do that. And we have SDKs as well for developing on render, but there's also the possibility of other people creating SDKs that can tie into that. And that work mm -hmm. is, is fundamentally important. Working with partners early on that are already doing this stuff, like the Midjourney guys are great. I mean, you know, there's, I mean, obviously we're working with other 3D tools, other renders, you know, doing actual things ourselves, pushing the envelope, even if it's small form content, like what we're doing with Roddenberry. Uh, it's like there's there's so much there and the fact that you know honestly even the nfts are, are a crazy space i mean you know there's probably hundreds of millions of dollars that are done by arctan artists I and mean, obviously you know mike's a big part of that but maybe yeah, a billion or yeah. something at this point that are that's not nothing now granted you know and i do feel that if you're creating something in octane as an nft I mean, selling, if you're selling your art, that's fine. Like, I think a lot of the NFTs are just spitting out a, a, an image and it's speculative and all that is not great. But I do think that there is an absolute, I mean, I talked about this photon-driven economy in 2017. This is before NFTs were even a thing. And I said, there is a way for creative individuals to make money on this system. Node operators make money fulfilling that. And that system is yet to be created. But I think that's the closest thing you'll come to seeing, you know, um, the metaverse in an ideal way, at least being, you know, fully realized. And I love that, that the artist's workflow is becoming easier and more democratized. I mean, that doesn't mean that there's any less creativity going into it, but the point of Octane was to make rendering easy and to make it easy to use for C40 users, right? They didn't have that kind of thing before. Uh, and we're still on that path. And all of those things, especially as we look at, you know, we're putting out an iPad app, an iPhone app. I mean, I think a lot of those, those users aren't going to be coming from the C40 or MoGraph world. They might be much more new to, to content creation, but still having that kind of power and letting them be creative, I think is is fundamentally going to, to be a huge part of all of this. And 
we don't know where that's going, but I think in the next few years, you'll see these things all really start to stitch together really nicely. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, we get a lot of questions that are kind of over our heads, you know, and, and because it's not related to art or animation or Octane specifically, you know, it has to do with render and tokens and things. And so, like, is there yeah. a place people can ask questions? Because like, you see here in the chat, you know, someone's asking about the payment system and things. Where's a good place for people to go? You know, you, you have such a great system for, like, feature requests in, in Octane, yeah. right? You know, is there yeah. something like that for Render 2? Yeah, I mean, part of the thing of doing the foundation is there'll be a, a dedicated organization that has its own really dedicated support infrastructure for those kinds of things. But as far as the, the node operators go, like, for example, there's a node operator Slack. I'm sometimes in there. And yes, I mean, I've seen one person payment systems. So, work oh my, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, there's and there's a couple issues. One of the things is switch having both layer one and layer two, which was, you know, layer two, those are familiar it's Polygon, it's Matic, it's faster. I mean, but resolving those things, having both at the same time has caused a bunch of backlog problems where probably going to have to settle on one for the most part. We're we're looking into that. And then the other thing is that there is an issue that that has come up where people don't finish jobs uh, or they don't have enough of of, of render in their their wallet to finish the job. And then it gets stuck in a loop. And that's actually Mm -hmm. another area of backlog that I I only really got to the bottom of in the last month or so. So we're going to fix those things. That's where, you know, to the, to the question that's asked here in the chat, that's where that's where we're at there. And I, I want to do that immediately. The team is on there. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think that we'll have a lot more alacrity on, on the, and even dedicated channels for specific support for node operators um, with some foundation. I mean, that's where a lot of that can, can go. Um, as far as artists, I mean, you know, that's a different world. I mean, to me, the, the artist's future requests for render are the same as the future requests for Octane or Brigade or anything else. Like, we, we kind of all know what we want to be able to do. I mean, it's not like there's, it's a mystery that you want to be able to have no export to Orbex and simplify these things and send your C for you. I mean, these are all things that, that make sense. We're mm-hmm. still developing a lot of that. So I think once those things are done, then, you know, having more interesting things you could do on-chain, for at least from our side of things, or at least in the SDK or API, um, you know, that, that will make, that will work. There's also, of course, in the same Slack, right, there is the artist, um, you know, channel as well. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a separation that should happen for that because not everything is going to be octane right in 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 the future so that's where the foundation can handle dedicated things related to other renders otoy will still help with that because i mean i think we're still going to be for years to come building fundamental pieces of render but we're going to be doing it for the foundation and that um that will at least allow there to be sort of a, a you know a dual focus um i think as far as a lot of the other questions of when you move to solana and what's the new i mean these things are are will be sorted out in the, in the coming months, but already you're seeing the big pieces fall into place with the proposal for the token economics, which is how this would have to happen. Like, we don't want to just, by fiat, say, this is it. We needed the process and the foundation and this this thing to let, even if we kind of have an idea of where we think this is going to go, and, and certainly our partners at Multicoin do, I mean, already I've seen that, that having people that are really smart and know this space, I mean, yeah, Burnerman, all these things, it's, it's a dark science, right? It's hard to get these, these systems right. So if you're going to go into anything like that, having experts all over the industry have a month or so to review these things. In fact, even when we implement it, it could still be voted on and altered a little bit later. Like, that's fundamentally important. And I think that we're going to do the same thing for, you know, how nodes and, and, and other things are operated. But at least, you know, there's a pretty strong roadmap for all these things years into the future that I know I want to see. And it's mm-hmm. a question of are we as a community feeling the same, you know, sort of, you know, are, is everything going smoothly or not? And if it's not, then at least having this sort of officially, you know, centered foundational piece where these things go, where we, we will be on the hook, of course, as Otoy for things that we're connecting. The foundation and Otoy will still be working on these things. But that's where I see an improvement coming there. I, I think that for now, the, the Slack channel for node operators and artists is not a bad place to go. Telegram mm-hmm. is a bit messy. There's also yeah. the Discord. We have a new Discord. There's a new Discord, server. too. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. 
And I, I mean, this court has got some fascinating, unique features. It's not my favorite thing in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm generally on, on the Facebook group, like I answer everything. Yeah. Now. And mm -hmm. sometimes on Twitter when I can, you know, and there, and there's some, some Twitter posts where like, I'd love to answer the question. I can't like just wait until there's a foundation done and you know, this will all be sorted out. But I, I do think that, you know, we're, we're probably going to have the Slack, you know, continue to, to grow and maybe we'll see mm -hmm. how the discord channel does, but that's kind of where, um, certainly for, for render specific things going forward, there'll probably be a lot of, of, um, uh, you know, of, of members there that can help. Um, but we're also dealing with, with, you know, what happens when you have third party things that are nothing to do with any of these pieces, right, that are running on there. So we will probably be having the foundation set those pieces up and helping, you know, have channels or, or, or forums dedicated to these things. And we're, we're kind of like, we're, I think we're in a decent place with Slack. We'll see how the Discord stuff goes. And if there's a better version of either of those things or even a dedicated website, which mm -hmm. will definitely happen, we'll, we'll look into all those things. But right now, yeah. I'd say the Slack is pretty good starting place for technical questions and support. And there's not I a lack have... of places to get a hold of you, too. I think over no, the years, you I'm everywhere. Like, yeah. I just, I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If you Instagram me, I'm barely on Instagram, so that's a you know I, I barely am in there. So, but the other things I'm, I'm I check much more frequently, including the Telegram and the and Twitter and and the Facebook group and everything. I try to be everywhere I can, the forums as well. So, right. Um, but we also have a, a growing team. We've actually expanded the team a lot on Render uh, just in the last few months, and more more to come, a lot more. So I think yeah. that there's going to be a lot more people that can help with uh, with all this. Yeah, and I, I do have to shown, say, you know, more, you've really shown that, that over the years that you're listening to what artists mm -hmm. and, and people are saying, for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, you can see that. I, I do have I to say, that, you know. with the, uh, the, um, uh, the addition of the new Orbex exporter in C4D, it's it's excellent. Like I I like being able to see my process and see how it's going, and I love the idea of uh of being able to set it as an additional thing that gets exported when you render. Like so, yeah. say mm -hmm. I'm rendering locally and I'm just rendering it like. 512 samples or something and if the client approves that i can upload that to render that orbix file to render and set it to go which yeah. is fantastic i really like that i do still run into some issues but i will say considering uh uh it, they have they have gotten considerably considerably better uh over the past year from working on our big projects and having to do yeah. that then there's a few things i gotta send to amit I just he's like, hey, can you help me? I'm like, sorry, I can't. It's all NDA. Right. So I yeah. got to create yeah. some stuff myself. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the Orbit exporter is going to always be there. It has to be because we have no idea whether, you know, I mean, especially when we're depending on a third party library. I mean, like like Cinema 4D or even Unreal, it's important that we maybe store and support the C4D hub. But having something on render that also can spit out the Orbex or having that option always there. Yeah. For preservation, even everything we do in the archive, all, yeah, we'll have all these things. We'll have the Blender files, but there's always an Orbex because I we can't, can, you know, can, we can't know for sure. Even for Blender, right? I mean, it's open source. You go, but the versions change. Like at least the Orbex is something like we have Orbexes from 12 years ago that rendered just fine from Octane mm -hmm. One in Octane 2022, 20, not whatever. I mean, you know, and it and it's it's amazing. So that and that's important because. To be honest, you need that uh, consistency as a baseline. So even if we support other formats or other things or other renderers, we're going to make sure that at the very least there's always this dist distillation path to rendering and storing things in Orbex, even if you don't need to have that explicitly supported. Because again, I mean, the um, the Orbex exporter should work. It may, it may be a pain in the butt, but it always needs to be there. And in some cases, there there may not be other choices. I mean, it's not just this, you know, C4D or Houdini engine. There's other things. Right. Um, and, and Orbex can still wrap multiple things together. It could wrap, for mm -hmm. example, a C4D file um, and, a, and a proxy or cache for it. So 
it all it all kind of connects together. Uh, and Orbex exporting from Unreal is going to be interesting too when you have the interactive pieces supported and you can bring that in and have physics mm-hmm. and other stuff in there. Um, so that's that's also on the on the horizon along with a full two D and video compositor system that at least give you a mini equivalent of After Effects or Photoshop mm-hmm. um, right within the you know the IPR window, which which I think will be helpful in certain cases. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, that's a lot to take in. Yeah, that is a lot. I think we'll probably end it there. Uh, I'm, I'm sure at this point everybody's going to rewind, start it over again, mm-hmm. and try and take it in a second time. I know I will yep. be for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know you got a lot going on and a lot mm-hmm. to work on. Got a metaverse to create, you know, and uh, <laughs> help, help create, help foster. Yeah. And uh, so, um, you know, we already know where people can get a hold of you. You got, you know, all the things. Um, so, so definitely, anyone, if if you have a question, you know, reach out. And um, we're going to get out here. You can rate us on iTunes. You can leave a review. You can sub- subscribe on your pod- podcaster of choice. Help get our ratings up. You can say you've been there, done that. Got the T-shirt with the MoGraph logo T. The Feel the Bab 2020 shirt. All the profits from that go to Doctors Without Borders. You've got the Render Things T-shirt, hoodie, and long sleeve tee, the MoGraph blandishment shirt, and then, of course, the That Render is Fire shirt, which you are only allowed to wear, ironically, <laughs> unless you're Shams. Unless you're Shams. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we're on YouTube, MoGraph.com. Don't forget, if you want to send us an email, info at MoGraph.com, uh, and you can check out the show schedule at MoGraph.com slash live. I think that's okay. it. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Thank you guys so much. This was Thanks. amazing. Yeah, thank you, Jules. Yeah. My and pleasure. Tom- Until next time, I'm Dave. And I'm Matt. I'm Schultz. Have a good one. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Later, yo. It's pretty good, I guess. MoGraph.com, an online resource for motion graphic artists. Start your week with the MoGraph podcast. Industry news, interviews with your favorite artists, and terrible humor. Watch live shows and interviews from MoGraph events like NAB, SeaGraph, HalfRes, and local meetups. Our MoGraph talks feature live demos and motivation from artists all around the world. Sometimes you got to make stuff that you're not going to put on your reel, and I'm not here to judge. What if Rick and Morty show up for the countdown at midnight? That's where I peaked in life, in my career. we got to stop this thing, Rick! It's going to kill us all! Hear from the people that create your software, design your render engines, and artists that are changing the face of modern motion graphics. You get that render done. Yeah, you better frame, frame what? MoGraph tutorials and online classes will teach you about Cinema 4D, After Effects, as well as other popular software and render engines. Throw in the HDR Studio, take the render settings, pick the HDR, put a reflection, and gorgeous. Branch into new software, learn time-saving tips, techniques, workflows, and lessons that'll keep you up to date in the world of motion design. Oh, brother, those are some of my favorite elves. I love projects that scare me. When our art director comes to us and asks for something that I had never done before, man, it gets me pumped. Join the conversation in our live sessions. Check out our plugins or join the hundreds of daily active users in our Slack channel for technical help, advice, contests, or just to joke around. Real nice banana. Ah, that's so funny. All right. I'm going to live forever. <laughs> Subscribe today and get the latest updates on our YouTube and other social media channels. Take all your dreams and just do it! We don't care how you get here, folks. 
Just get here. Subscribe to MoGraph.com.